My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The end, The Secret. The Android. The Forgot. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spell. The Departure. The Sound. The Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious Existence. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. Not an Animorphs book. All right. Here we are. It's our series recap episode, or series retrospective, really. We're not going to do a 60-second recap of the whole series. <laughs> no. We could do, like, the 10-second recap. Do you want to give it a try? Kids meet alien, get morphing power, fight other aliens, win! Yay! Um, no. I mean... I strong disagree with win, yay. <laughs> Yeah, when Ye does not seem to be the correct an- ending to this. I think when oh, is like a slightly more accurate. Okay, all right. How about when? Yay! There we go. Okay. Much better. So for this week, it's been a week since we read and recorded the episodes for 53 and 54. And so we thought we would come back, talk about other things that we think about the last book now that we're a week away from reading it. And some thoughts about the series as a whole. And we went back and listened to the first couple of Endmorphology episodes to get some perspective on our podcasting experience as a whole. The next episode you will hear in our feed, either a week from now or two weeks from now, is going to be a panel of returning guest hosts. I'm very excited about this. Very excited about. All the people who had to censor themselves when they were on the podcast because they couldn't talk about the ending, now they can say whatever they want. Yeah, it's going to be so great to hear that. And we also have a lot of people who hadn't read the ending when they came on our show. And like now they've at least like listened to us talk about it and can see how it affected them. So what should we start with? Ooh, great. How are you feeling about the end of this series now that you've had a little bit of distance? I cannot believe how emotionally scarred children reading this series must have been. (laughs) (laughs) There was a joke in, and I say joke. I mean joke in air quotes in the um, mailbag episode that I don't know if it was from incorrect Animorphs quotes or one of our commenters, but somebody said something to the effect of, uh, I can no longer be emotionally damaged because I read the Animorphs at age eight. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Correct. That seems accurate to to my understanding. That's not how emotional damage works. But the reading end morphs at eight, yeah. yeah. Yeah, their their emotional damage score is already like they've already got negative hit points because of reading the animorphs <laughs> at age eight. So right. it's, it's I a mean, critical hit on child yeah. psyches. Oh man, it's tough. We seem to have done okay, Jenny. Okay, I mean, I was when Gray said that. You were not I was, eight. I was immediately going to argue like, no, it was totally fine. Like I was not fine. I was like fifteen and I was not okay. Like I didn't even think about the ending. For years, like the ending was this horrible thing. When we started the podcast, I think I've said this before, when we started the podcast and Ted was like, we'll read the whole series. I was like, I don't know if I can reread the ending, but like, okay, that's a long way away. Let's start the podcast. We'll see how I feel. And, you know, it was okay once I got to it. You know, it was obviously people have listened to our episode 54. We were deeply affected, but... When I was 15, like, I was, you know, I wasn't a little kid. And I don't know if that makes it more affecting or less, like, the fact that, like, I was starting to come into my adult emotional capacity. 
But I just like, it was like a, I can't look directly at it type situation. It was so devastating. There were, and there were a few parts of it. That's like what happened to Rachel, um, the alienation, no pun intended from this group of people who were this cohesive group that I loved spending time with. And then all of a sudden they were scattered and that affected me really deeply. And I feel like the things that affected the Animorphs are not the same things that affected me. Like the killing of thousands of defenseless Yerks didn't have a strong impact on me. Didn't remember that happened. Sure. Like, that was, that wasn't something I cared about as a reader, but my like emotional dependence on this series and the way that it took away the things that I was depending on, like that was really rough for me. So yeah. Yeah. You just, the, what you were saying just made something click for me. Cause I was like, I was three years younger finishing the series and mm-hmm. I was really upset by the ending, but I also think that I was like, blown away by sort of the audacity of it Mm. a little bit or like I was like maybe I was young enough that I still sort of like accepted it authoritatively like I was like this isn't how I would have ended it but this is the official ending so it has to be this way (laughs) instead of being like they should have ended it differently right exactly I didn't quite I don't think I could have articulated an idea that like I would have ended it this way but what strikes me about what you just said is I don't think I really got the like war crimes thing out of it like yeah. the all the thematic stuff that the ending does about the horrors of war but I think I felt that because I was so upset that Jake wasn't okay yeah. right like yeah. so like I didn't understand why but I was upset by the fact that he had a sad ending yeah right yeah. and like that he and cassie weren't together and uh-huh. like yeah so like it's interesting that probably the adult themes went over my head but that feeling of this ending is like unhappy stayed right like that really yeah. landed and that was specific to jake's ending for you i think my understanding of the ending was more or less that they die saving the galaxy the ending that ending mm. ram the blade ship moment is like a oh they finally found you know the the last trace of the yurk empire and then they all go out in a blaze of glory ah okay and i don't know whether this just came from my rereading it maybe 10 years ago or if i had if i reread the animorph series like right after it ended or something i wouldn't have been surprised if i'd done that or at least at least reread the last 10 books i feel like i sort of warmed up to the idea that it was less a suicide charge and more like a well they're off to a new war which is kind of i think it's like a, a sort of reboot of a different flavor of animorph storytelling yeah yeah and i i think like that obviously that rachel dies is tragic you love Rachel and Tobias. I super hard shipped Jake and Cassie. All of the like stuff that I saw in this read about how their relationship has been a little uh, challenging since day one. I think that also went over my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I probably thought that Marco and Axe got happy endings, though I'm going to talk about later in this podcast how I don't think that's true. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that's striking me now is that in some ways reading is a very empathetic exercise right like you're really like stepping into other people's heads sure but as a reader our desires for the characters are really antisocial, cruel like we don't experience things the way the characters do we don't necessarily even want the characters to be happy in a straightforward way we want the characters to keep doing the things we enjoy seeing them do and so Hmm. violence in 
literature like can be profoundly affecting to to a reader. It's never going to be affecting in quite the same way that it is to a person actually experiencing it. So it's really all about how the text treats it. And these books do take violence very seriously. But reading about violence like this in this context of like middle grade superhero-esque adventures, that kind of thing, doesn't, I don't think, traumatize most readers in the same way. Like maybe some of the scary stuff will scare people. I know we had like at least one of our guest hosts say that they got nightmares from animorphs when they were little. But I bet more from the turning into animals and like the idea of controllers and not so much violence. violence. Yeah. But also this this idea of like what is bad for the animorphs is not the same thing that's bad for us as readers like continuing to fight this war was very bad for the animorphs it ground them down they got more and more like emotionally damaged and as a reader what i wanted was for them to just keep fighting forever and the end of the war maybe if everything had ended just like really unrealistically happily somehow and i bought that as a legitimate ending Maybe I would have been okay with that because it would have been like, okay, well, I can always reread. But I was very attached to things that were bad for the characters. And it was really rough Hmm. for me to see them losing that in a way that like, like I wanted them to be happy. But for me, their happiness was like, you know, being together fighting aliens, even though clearly it wasn't making them happy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there's something to that. If we had gotten, I think, Jake... He's unhappy and depressed, but he morphs dolphin and then he goes to therapy and then he's a successful mm-hmm. West Point instructor and he uh-huh. he talks about he basically does what I want the animorphs to do and say, "Hey, I did a bunch of bad stuff. War is bad. Like mm-hmm. I'm so lucky that I have a great community and support system and you guys think I'm a hero, but let's talk about the real heroes and let's talk about these other issues that we have to face and like using sure. his platform to like try and continue to do good in the world, right? Like mm, and then he's seen like more of the Jake we saw in the series, well, but, no, but I'm saying up. if we had seen that that maturation, like it I think it it would undercut the message of the series mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. Cause I think 12-year-old Ted would have left it being like, oh, yeah, Jake did a bunch of bad stuff, but he won the war, and then a few years later, he felt okay. And I would not have had to pause and think about um, the fact that he got his brother and cousin killed and maybe did a needless war crime, weighs him down for the rest of his life. And Mm -hmm. so the only thing he can go off and do is be a superhero again. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that it is narratively unsatisfying and unhappy drives home that theme in a way that Mm -hmm. would be hard to do without an unhappy ending and i think that's a i don't know if that is generally true but that feels really true about the way the animorphs ended i do think that's true and well one thing you were saying in one of the first episodes of the podcast was how you were and i think it's related to this you were basically like rereading the invasion as an adult you're like oh my gosh these children are terrible (laughs) things are happening to them and like Uh being a child uh soldier is so terrible and what you said is like when you're a kid reading about it You don't dwell on that part because you don't really know how and like you're a kid who hasn't had to face a lot of trauma in your life. And so it's just like exciting and you don't think about how how bad the real world can be. Right. And so like some of that coming to it as adults is like, oh, we've maybe like learned the lessons that the world teaches you eventually. But even as kids, like the series had that darkness all along. (laughs) One of the things that you said about that in the first I think the first episode is I think you put it as a uh, tragedy is real, which <laughs> yikes as a series um, theme. 
But also, there's so much to feel as you're living in these kids' heads is another thing. And I think that's a really interesting point, too, that, like, they are experiencing so many things. And, Jenny, as you were saying, the empathy that we feel for them as readers allows us to experience that to some degree as well. Mm -hmm. And while we may not want it to end so that we can keep enjoying it, I think there's something to be said for the empathy of, like, understanding what Jake is going through and experiencing that with him to some extent. Well, one interesting thing about my experience of the ending when I was a kid, and I don't know how universal this is, but I definitely wasn't in a position to absorb the ending. Like the idea that, oh, wow, this war we've been reading about is actually as terrible as the ending makes it clear that it is. And it's war, of course, it's terrible. But the books, I mean, no one would be reading the books if it sucked to read them. Like you read them because it's fun. Like you're not going to read them if it is as bad as actual war is. And so as an adult, I can understand what the ending is doing and like the message it's trying to convey to children. I don't know how many children it actually conveyed it to. I'd be curious to know other people's reactions to the ending because I came away being like, oh, well, that was awful. I'm like never going to think about that again. Not like, wow, what a profound statement on war. Like I just wasn't able to take that in because it was a message that cut so much deeper than most of the series did because most of the series has all this awfulness sort of balanced with this Mm -hmm. wonderful middle grade found family, exciting adventures, fun banter stuff. And then to have most of that stripped away at the ending and to see the real raw truth, that didn't work for me. I wasn't brought there in a way where I could Mm. absorb it, which honestly is probably good because do you want someone absorbing that as a child? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. It's interesting to think about this as a medium for conveying that message because I'm not sure. I'd be really curious to know how how many people actually got it. So I was thinking about this when you were talking about Jake's kind of ending arc earlier, Ted, and kind of would he have kind of ended up as a teacher at West Point, like getting therapy or, or working, you know, with, with soldiers and trying to convey his experiences. And I, I would be very curious if there has been any study, interviews, long form article, anything about children who read the Animorphs before 9-11 and then joined the army. And huh. what, if there was any crossover... I'm sure there was at least a little bit. The Animorphs were wildly popular and lots of people joined the military post 9-11. The ages Mm -hmm. would be like slightly off. Like Jenny, you were 16 when you finished reading them, right? And so it would have been a couple years later that was the first time you'd have been able to... Right, and I was old to be reading them. So most people were probably like... Probably younger. But, you know, that was 20 years ago now. And one thing that we have learned in the intervening 20 years from these young people coming back from the Middle East and from those conflicts is essentially what Kay Applegate was trying to tell us all along, which is war is hell. There are no good decisions and you are tortured by them for the rest of your life, no matter what you do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we see a lot of that in the high prevalence of PTSD in soldiers of every generation and kind of the, you know, the huge number of suicides amongst uh, Middle East war vets. And I, I just... I wonder if that is, I mean, I think Kay Applegate is telling us something that's very true. Not that children are necessarily kind of understanding it at that level, but I would be so curious as to whether there's any kind of, whether anyone's ever talked about that. And also like the idea of Jake becoming um, 
becoming a therapist in his own right. Like I could see that as a potential path, right? He has experienced Mm. the worst that war has to offer. And maybe if this book were being written 20 years later, his end experience, as you were saying, like, you know, trying to help other people with the help that he needed might be becoming that therapist himself. Like I've been saying all along, I want them to get out therapy. Maybe one of them becomes an actual (laughs) therapist. So anyway, I was just I could see that for Jake. If he, you know, comes back from fighting the one. What would you imagine the effect would be just that like kids who read Animorphs would think about the trauma of war differently? Or do you think it would affect their decision to join the army? I mean, maybe a little bit of both. Or maybe maybe having read Animorphs would make them feel less alone. Interesting. That would be great. I I have no idea if that happened to anyone out there, but... Yeah. Like I said, I was just, you know, curious about it. I think the, like, do you want a kid's series to cut that deep is, like, an interesting question yeah. that might be very hard to answer authoritatively. <laughs> but my instinct is, like, yes, definitely. Kids can and maybe should learn those things mm. in from middle grade fiction. I feel like my takeaway from the ending, like, I don't think that I necessarily left with a lesson that I could directly apply to like my understanding of politics as a kid. (laughs) But I do feel like I learned a lot about like ethics in wartime, right? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. the books are so relentlessly philosophical and provide no easy answers. And I feel like that's not like a sudden pivot at the ending. I think it's, Oh, definitely. It's woven throughout. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard to know. It's impossible to know what, I would be like if I hadn't read the Animorphs, but it feels very foundational to the way that I think about uh, right and wrong and the degree to which I've internalized that there are no easy answers and absolutely right choices, right? And so I think that way of thinking about these issues certainly comes through in the whole series and the ending is very in line with that take. It's just very, it's true in a way that a kind of happy ending would not be. Yeah. And I, I should say, I, I feel like the ending didn't really reach me, but yeah, or I wasn't able to grapple with the ending, but the philosophical questions raised throughout most of the series, like I was fascinated by those. And like, I feel the same way, Ted, that they really formed my introduction to a lot of these ideas that I have carried forward. And I wonder, I don't know, this is probably, this is probably groundless. I, I know that there were younger people who were just as upset by the ending, but I wonder if reading it a little bit older, but not old enough is almost the worst thing Mm. where you're like old enough to understand a little bit more, but like not old enough to have the tools to deal with it. I don't know. I'm, that's probably groundless. So I really want to share with Gray for the first time. And I think you probably read this, Jenny, Mm -hmm. but maybe not recently. A once. letter to the fans that <gasps> Apple Grant wrote shortly after the series finished. Oh. So I don't know if we want to talk more about our idea of the themes of the series, but Apple Grant did write a letter basically. I guess you're, you've are you been asking a lot, how did people react? A lot of people were really upset by the <laughs> ending. Um, yeah, yeah. And so to the point that Apple Grant wrote a letter basically saying, hey, this is why we ended it. And this is why we ended it this way. I want that. All right. All right. So we'll go into it. Hopefully it won't be too much. I'm a little wary of like word of God being that authoritative. So we can feel free to disagree with Apple Grant Mm -hmm. on uh, how well they did. But this is the letter. Dear Animorphs readers, quite a number of people seem to be annoyed by the final chapter in the Animorphs story. There are a lot of complaints that I let Rachel die, that I let Viscera 3 slash 1 live. 
that Cassie and Jake broke up, that Tobias seems to have been reduced to unexpressed grief, that there was no grand final fight to end all fights, that there was no happy celebration, and everyone is mad about the cliffhanger ending. So I thought I'd respond. Animorphs was always a war story. Wars don't end happily. Not ever. Often relationships that were central during war dissolve during peace. Some people who are brave and fearless in war are unable to handle peace, feel disconnected and confused. Other times people in war make the move to peace very easily. Always people die in wars, and always people are left shattered by the loss of loved ones. That's what happens, so that's what I wrote. Jake and Cassie were in love during the war, and end up going their separate ways afterward. Jake, who was so brave and capable during the war, is adrift during the peace. Marco and Axe, on the other hand, move easily past the war and even manage to use their experience to good effect. Rachel dies, and Tobias will never get over it. That doesn't by any means cover everything that happens in a war, but it's a start. Here's what doesn't happen in a war. There are no wondrous climactic battles that leave the good guys standing tall and the bad guys lying in the dirt. Life isn't a World Wrestling Federation smackdown. Even the people who win a war, who survive and come out the other side with the conviction that they have done something brave and necessary, don't do a lot of celebrating. There's very little chanting of we're number one among people who've personally experienced war. I'm just a writer, and my main goal was always to entertain. But I've never let Animorphs turn into just another painless video game version of war, and I wasn't going to do it at the end. I've spent 60 books telling a strange, fanciful war story, sometimes very seriously, sometimes more tongue-in-cheek. I've written a lot of action and a lot of humor and a lot of sheer nonsense. But I have also, again and again, challenged readers to think about what they were reading, to think about the right and wrong, not just the who beat who. And to tell you the truth, I'm a little shocked that so many readers seem to believe I'd wrap it all up with a lot of high-fiving and backslapping. Wars very often end, sad to say, just as ours did, with a nearly seamless transition to another war. So you don't like the way our little fictional war came out? You don't like Rachel dead and Tobias shattered and Jake guilt-ridden? You don't like that one war simply led to another? Fine. Pretty soon you'll all be of voting age and of draft age. So when someone proposes a war, remember that even the most necessary wars, even the rare wars where the lines of good and evil are clear and clean, end with a lot of people dead, a lot of people crippled, and a lot of orphans, widows, and grieving parents. If you're mad at me because that's what you have to take away from Animorphs, too bad. I couldn't have written it any other way and remain true to the respect I have always felt for Animorphs readers. K.A. Applegate. Woof. Yeah. I definitely have read that before. I I remember specifically the thing about like like relationships that during war will change after. Like the way people are during war will change after. Like that really stuck with me. Hmm. I think I mostly support this like I, I think she's right that she couldn't really have ended it in a way that stayed true to the the spirit of the series without going to at least most of the places she went to obviously there was some discretion she could have made slightly different choices whatever it feels a little bit to me like so you guys have seen frozen right yes yes so you know how anna and hans sing love is an open door and as the viewer you're like oh this is like a great like disney love story okay and then later on they're like you were stupid to believe that love story even though normally when we start you know normally when we have two characters like fall in love via a happy song and it's way too fast it turns out happy this time it doesn't and that's realistic and you should have seen this coming and you're dumb for having thought it was otherwise and like i feel like I'm putting it strongly, but I feel like we're going to have to argue about Frozen again. And this is an Animorphs (laughs) podcast, Jenny. (laughs) And I just want to like, whether or not you agree, that's how it worked at Frozen. I do feel like there's a little bit of that here where she's like, what, you didn't expect me to leave you totally devastated after you had all of these books of extremely enjoyable, they all get saved from everything. Like, 
I think it was right to stay true to the spirit of the series, but I also think it shouldn't have been a surprise to her that she was pulling the rug out from under all of us with Mm. what she did at the end. Yeah, I I remember the first time I encountered this letter, and I don't know if it was shortly after the series or years later, I was like, yeah, yeah, like, Kay Applegate, yeah, like, this is, you know, (laughs) you're really, you're really telling people who didn't get Animorphs. But I, I totally read it now as like, author publishes ending receives criticism and like Mm -hmm. this is the letter has a very aggrieved tone that i think is not (laughs) a good look Mm. and somebody on the internet suggested that the voice of the letter is much more michael grant than (laughs) Catherine applegate sound more michael grant just Um, based on the other do we know them we don't know them we We know know them them, but we know that we know that michael grant was the one who posted an aggrieved essay about how he's the most diverse ya middle grade author that's true. In terms this, of representation. So, this feels like groundless speculation, but sure. Yeah, we can cut it. We can cut it. I, Kay Applegate, we love both of you, and we want you on our, our podcast. Yes, please. Apple um, Grant, come hang out with us. But yeah, so like the sort of author versus audience thing, I don't love so much. I also feel like the Animorph series speaks for itself, and you don't mm, like, mm-hmm, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. this is, I don't like word of God stuff generally, though I do. the author. Yeah, but I do appreciate the full-throated defense of the themes. Mm-hmm. Like, I prefer, I would prefer something like this to like a, we're not going to defend the ending at all. It speaks for itself, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad that they're, they're standing up for we wanted to make a meaningful ending, mm-hmm. right? Because like, I guess the thing that I appreciate about it is like, there's no reason for them to do this, except that this was the story they wanted to tell, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could have just wrapped it up with a much more narratively conventional and satisfying ending mm-hmm. where there's a, you know, it, they probably wouldn't have done a triple wedding or whatever, right? But you could have, <laughs> you could have had all the things, and or you could have had like a much softer version of the ending where like Jake and Cassie aren't together, but they're friends, and they mm-hmm. still talk about old times, and like Tobias still comes by. You still could have had Rachel die, right? Like, but they just, they're just like, this is what feels true to us, and we're gonna write it super well. And I, I really respect that. And I absolutely love the ending and kind of, I guess maybe this is one of the things that like frustrated you, Jenny, but like it kind of, you could have written the Animorphs as a series contained so much that it maybe is a little limiting to like, just say it was actually about war and not about any of the other themes, right? Mm -hmm. Like that it could have been. It's Um, a pretty big theme, but. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I really appreciate how opinionated the ending is instead of like a. Yeah, it could have been wishy-washy. And yeah, it's yeah. I would compare it to, I think that the the last Hunger Games book is very weakly written and plotted. Yes, it is. But I do love <laughs> how opinionated the ending is in a similar way to the end Interesting. of the Interesting. I despised the last Hunger I know, Games yeah, book. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it really fell down on almost every count. I feel like Apple Grant knew that they were driving towards this ending the whole time, so it felt like the inevitable ending, and it felt like everyone should have expected it. I don't know that they foreshadowed it the way they thought they did, um, just because of genre. Like, you have to do a lot of work to overcome the expectations of genre. So, like, it probably seemed to them like, what, this was here all the time. And, like, seeds of it were, but mm. you, like Ted was saying, you could have taken it in many different, at least, you could have shaded the ending in many different ways based on what was there. This was not an inevitable ending. Yeah. I don't know that they knew the ending the whole time, but it's clear that they had the ending in mind when they were wrapping it up. Mm-hmm. So I think that their decision to end it this way slightly does a disservice to the series as a whole 
from like the character perspective mm-hmm. to deliver on a theme. Because like Ooh. the ending is very, very good character stuff for Jake. And it it's hit or miss with every other Animorph. And like Jake and maybe Cassie secondarily are the characters with arcs in the last 10 books. Like you get mm. sort of like depressed Death Wish Jake and you get Cassie making her mm-hmm. absolutely ludicrously mm-hmm. bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> and True. with good with mixed consequences but from the same kind of like ideal idealistic perspective that she had in 19 but if you were thinking about like what's the satisfying ending for each of these characters that delivers on the theme i'm not sure you would have written this ending this feels Ooh, a lot more yeah. like i want to tell a war is bad story and i'm going to use jake as a vehicle for getting it there mm-hmm. right because like yeah, Tobias and Marco are Jake, more or less a, a non-entity yeah. in the in the conclusion of the series. And the series as a whole was so balanced, and yeah. then then it really focuses and in on Jake. Rachel and Axe are more like they're certainly more plot relevant, but their character they don't have any interesting is, character stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is in, it is it's. I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> overstate the point, but I think it it is it was a really like bold choice to say we'll use Jake to deliver on these like horrors of war themes instead of like let's pay off the series holistically like each character mm. gets to an exciting conclusion and it te- you know yeah i don't know yeah although i do like what she says in the letter about how war is hell but there are lots of different ways that you can react to that or deal mm. with that and so oh that's so true yeah you know axe and marco have a very different reaction cassie has a very different reaction than jake does or tobias does because people have different reactions and yeah, using so the fact there that. are six characters yeah. to have six different endings, more or less. Right. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention, I pulled up the letter that Ted read just because I wanted to reflect on it. And it's easier for me to do that when I'm reading it than listening to it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find where that came from because it's not in the book. Right. So where did she write it? So I'm sure you guys already know this, but for our audience who maybe doesn't, apparently it was posted on Morphs. Dot com. That's Morphs with a Z, my friends. Morphs.com <laughs> um, by the person who owned the website because that person had kept in touch with K.A. Applegate during the run of the Animorph series. Like they had a correspondence. And so he was cool. able to post her letter. So that's sort of a, it is a letter to fans, but like for a very specific fan base. But I didn't know. Hmm. And now I'm, once we're done with this series and I get to like go dive into fandom. One of the things that so I'm soon, Gray. so excited to read <laughs> is a thing called Anabase, mm, A-N-I-B-A-S-E, which is the scholastic website dedicated to the Animorphs, on which, apparently, K.A. Applegate has done a book-by-book commentary on the Whoa, series. Oh, I didn't which know that. I'm going to read the heck out of you guys. I'm super excited. <laughs> but what she said on Anabase is I'd always known that Animorphs would end the way it did. I knew I wanted it to end with victory, but I also knew I didn't want a clean victory. I wanted more Lord of the Rings, less Star Wars in the ending. I always (laughs) admired the way Tolkien gave his characters victory, but left them with a sadder, less exciting, less enchanting world in the end. That explains a lot. I really like that. (laughs) So the thing that, that gets me a little bit about the letter to fans. Like, yeah, you did end it well in the last two books. You also... How to put this? Just say what you feel. <laughs> you also did a terrible job with the previous 20 books, basically. Like, the way that this ending could have been if they had been writing the whole ending 
is completely different than the ending we actually got. So much of the stuff was like poorly established, like poorly threaded through multiple books. There were like continuity errors. There were really clumsy attempts at character arcs and character interactions. Like this whole like, this is the ending we wanted to write and, you know, I don't understand why anyone's unhappy with it would ring a little truer if they had actually done as good a job with the second half of the series as they did in the first half. And of course, there are, like, there are realities, like they, they couldn't have written all of the books, they couldn't have written those and fulfilled their other contracts. Like, I know why they did what they did, but like, they did a bad job with the second mm. half of the series. Yeah. And that's something that's come very clear to me reading it as an adult. I knew when I was a kid that I didn't like the way it ended and I like couldn't really handle the ending. But I didn't quite recognize how stark the difference was between books that were handled very capably by Apple Grant and books that were really clumsily executed and didn't deliver on what they were trying to do. And that is a huge part of why I didn't like the ending, I'm sure, because there's a lot not to like, not necessarily even the last like the last two books are very well written, even if there are like things that like any of us might have issues with. But like, there's so much that is bad, like badly written, badly executed. And that takes a little bit of the teeth out of that letter, I think. Or like a little bit of the, I don't know, righteous stand out of the letter. Yeah. Also like 52. Oh, 52 was not good. No, like tonally is totally different from the ending. Because like Jake's whole defeat the Yurks don't become them is like, exactly the fantasy marvel movie like wwe smackdown <laughs> type philosophy that most of these stories would have right it's like we get to you know be all rah rah yeah rah rah happy <laughs> and feel morally superior and win and like you know obviously the ending of that the last chapter in that book is pretty devastating but still like yeah, they, he just totally um, drops that yeah. in the next book. But it's just like the ghostwriter didn't have a handle on the thematic material. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mostly think, though, that like the despite the ending being bad, the like... I or, mean... <laughs> no, sorry. Despite the second half of the series not being as strong as the first half of the series, I still feel like given what they were doing, the choice to end it at all and to come back for the final few books, like they didn't have any obligation to do it as well as they did. Right, like <laughs> yeah, they could have just let it trail yeah, off. Yeah, like and like most we've talked about how it's kind of like a TV series model. Like most TV shows of the era, the Enormous books were coming out, just like stayed on TV until they were so bad they got canceled because no mm -hmm. one was watching them. Right, and I feel like the Animorphs as a franchise was basically operating on the same business model. They will keep yeah. printing new Animorphs books and selling them until kids stop buying them. Yeah, and, they could have stretched it out. A right, lot and so I I really admire their choice to give us a real ending at all yeah i'll buy that i like that although i do want to know what happens after they ram the blade ship <laughs> you know it's an ending but it's You'll also just have to write a cliffhanger it, and i kind of i don't know i can see that being really frustrating if you were reading these earlier like you know at 13 and you're like what the what the hell? I really want to know what happens. But also I like that sense of like the adventure continues that we don't mm -hmm. get. I think there are a lot of middle grade books where the ending becomes really pat because they're trying to wrap up all the loose ends. Mm -hmm. And a thing that I think this ending does really well is demonstrate that that's not possible, that there are, mm -hmm. that our lives continue uh, and that, yeah. you know, for these books, these characters' lives continue. They have to become adults and, like, figure out what's next. And all of that is a nice reminder 
that no matter how many books end happily ever after, life isn't like that. And we all have to find our own path, whatever that looks like. So it's kind of a nice, I don't know, I think it's a kind of a nice way to very subtly emphasize that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, That reminds me of one of the things about 54 specifically that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Which is sort of an alternate reading on the ending to what you just said. So I I do think the adventure continues, but in rereading the last book, I feel like there's another, like, the Jake getting the team back together thing is, like, narratively very satisfying. But if you actually read about what the characters are going through, it feels like a trap closing in on each of them. Mm. And, like, basically Jake using his authority to drag them all back into a war that like really in a really kind of unnecessary way Hmm. um so i just want to read a little bit of that with this in mind okay so like at the end of the tobias chapter Mm -hmm. right it's the first time jake and tobias have meaningfully interacted since the war and tobias is like oh gosh it's axe he's my shorm i have to do this and he thinks i could fly away if i didn't i was trapped i would be trapped with jake again Um, (laughs) And you don't really hear more from Tobias internally, like what he's thinking. And then Marco, when Jake comes to him, you know, Marco is, he does seem to be adrift a little bit Mm -hmm. in life, but taking a step back, not any more so than any other 19 year old, (laughs) you know, like, even if you have a totally normal life and you are very successful, you're going to have those days where you sit by your pool in your mansion. Like, what is it all for? And think, what is, is it all for? Right? So, like... Yeah, he's doing fine. Jake shows up and Marco thinks, The last three years were magically reduced to a daydream. An old reality emerged from beneath the illusion. I reached for my drink and my hand was trembling. Jake waited, patient, now that he knew that I knew. He was watching me, waiting for my reaction. Waiting, but not like he had any doubt about me, the smug jerk. You're about to ruin my life, aren't you? I asked him. I sounded more self-pitying than I'd intended to. That depends. Yeah, right. So what is it? He told me, and every word was another nail in my coffin. Because what was I going to do? Refuse to help save Axe? Yikes. And then later in the conversation, Marco has this whole thing about, Jake, you have to trust your intuition. You can't be all, like, mopey and whatever. And then it, it really reads like, okay, Marco's fixing Jake. And then this is how the chapter ends. I stopped talking and Jake didn't say anything. I could tell I'd had no effect on him, mm-hmm. or at least not the effect I'd hoped. All I'd managed to do was send him spiraling back to that awful day aboard the pool ship. After a while, he shook himself, smiled, and said, So you're in, right? And of course, I was. <laughs> then Jake talks about picking the two new Animorphs from his academy. He chooses them based on the strength of them having no close family. <laughs> then, they all, then they all fly off on the blade ship on their, you know, suicide mission to start a war with the Kelbrids and blow up the blade ship. And, like, it's really, really grim. It's, like, very possible to read. It is, like, a purely tragic ending for all the characters except for Cassie. Yeah, that's... Grim is correct. That is grim. <laughs> it's really... I really admire how it feels exciting narratively to yeah. get the, get a new yeah, gang yeah. together and, like, restart the adventure. But, like, it has that layer of... But actually, this is bad. This is really yeah, bad. It's These really bad. Well, it is. It's a little bit like undermining its own genre, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. This is like we've been through this whole exciting like these characters are like banding together to fight the evil thing with these cool powers. And like we've been through it once and like they've been sort of gutted by it. And yeah. now they're going to do it again. And it still sort of has that like 
exciting adventure tone, but yeah. and you they know are, what's underneath it. Now right. the one, whatever, the one who is many or whatever that is, seems just as bad, if not worse, than the Yerks, right? In oh, terms yeah, of like, like great a, cosmic evil. And the Yerks are like individually, you know, not all powerful in like a cryak way, whereas right. this thing might be. Can we do a little Elemist's plan sidebar for a second? So... In the Elmist Chronicles, we learned that he picked four of the Animorphs. Mm-hmm. He picked Cassie because she's temporally grounded, and so time travel shenanigans can't affect the the timeline. Mm-hmm. He picked Tobias and Axe because of their relationship to Elfangor, and he picked Marco, Marco because of his relationship to Visser One. Jake and Rachel are uh, circumstantial. So why did he pick those four? I think Cassie because she has like a a time travel yeah, superpower yeah. totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Marco, his relationship with Visser One was pretty pivotal in kicking off the end game. Right. Yeah. Axe and Tobias, why? It it makes sense to me that he would pick Tobias for similar reasons as he would pick Marco in that having someone But Alphagor is dead. Yeah, well I'm just thinking like having someone who is related to Alphagor, I don't know, it maybe doesn't necessarily help with any of the specific plots but like I think this is just sheer speculation on our part but didn't we once speculate that that's the reason that Alphengoa can give him the brain dump thing at the beginning? Oh um yeah we don't really know but sure maybe. I mean rampant speculation as with so much of our podcast but <laughs> I thought that was so one true. of the things we suggested. Right and okay so and Tobias is like actually one of the most special but he has very little to do with the actual endgame so maybe it's the saving the hork thing that mm. happens much earlier in the series. That's like why Tobias is crucial. Okay. Yeah, so the Elemis never actually says. It's the Drode saying, how could we not have seen it? Elfingor's brother, his time-shifted son, this anomalous girl here, and the son of Visser One's host body? A group of six supposedly random humans, slash humans and Andalite, that contains those four. You stacked the deck. Did I? The Elemis laughed. That would have been very clever of me. So I guess that's an admission. Yeah, once you're once you're like saying, okay, the Elemis definitely had some influence here. Like, of course, he directed Tobias there. That would be too I much of a coincidence if he hadn't. That Tobias is described as time shifted, and I hate. <laughs> we're not going to have the conversation about the timeline in the Andalite Chronicles again. No, we're we not. Have two hours for that. We're already an hour into this recording. We don't need to. The talk best about it thing again. about. The Animorphs franchise is the established truth of pocket universes. It is. We know it. they exist now. I realize the council has voted, so, you know. But you know what? He doesn't say Elfingor's son born in a pocket universe. But it's an admission. I mean. Time shifted, not universe shifted. <laughs> so, oh, shout out to an amazing reference that Marco makes that I don't think we talked about in book 54. Yeah. He's talking about how Jake's like getting the gang all back together. And I think he's comparing them all to like Clint Eastwood and stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. And then he says, he's like, it's it's you and me. And he makes some references. And then he looks at Tobias and he's like, and Foghorn Leghorn, the Looney Tunes chicken or rooster. I say, I say, I say, exactly. Uh, which I loved. Yeah, I don't know. There are some other... I had some other thoughts about the ending. I guess one little thing is um, <laughs> when Jake wins and he's negotiating with the Andalites, he's like, oh, they don't want to give me the morphing technology. Oh, well, I tried. <laughs> and then Marco comes over to him and says, if we back down on this, they own us. Mm. And Jake is like, all right, all right. So the reason that they 
uh, don't renege on their promise to the Yurks and Taxons is because they don't want the Andalites to have one over on them, right? Ooh. It's not because they're good people, right? Like, it's just because, like, Marco and Jake both realize tactically this is a mistake. Is that, yeah. yeah. So it's it's so Ooh. it's so realistic. And, like, I really like that. Really like that moment. So I, we probably talked about it, but the Andalites build Esplan a yerk box. I don't know that we talked about it that much. Um, it's kind of amazing. For his his trial, because they're like, they we can't have, have him infest robots. someone. Yeah. That but, yeah, they should all I'm saying. mass produce them. Mass produce a yerk box. Yerk box. I like that Jake, when he has a, when he starts falling apart on the stand, he has internalized the droid's nickname for him. Jake the Yerk Killer. <gasps> which is an interesting, it's he interesting that that's. 53 too. Wow. Yeah. And it's just interesting that that got oh, so deep into his psyche. did his work right? well. Do y'all want to talk about, uh, okay, so I have two more things that are ending-ish. Mm-hmm. One is the sort of overall 90s perspective on war and... The other one is that I want to talk about that conversation about whether Jake is a bad person or not. Mm, mm-hmm. The one that he has with Cassie and Marco. Isn't everyone a bad person and a good person, Ted? Oh, all right. Podcast <laughs> over. So glad we had this podcast and this conversation. <laughs> and that you've you know, solved so many philosophical point. issues for everyone. Thank you. We're done. I kind of want to talk about the Yerk's plan as a whole. Like, Gray, you've been criticizing them a lot on the along the way. Yes, I think I it was have. all very justified. And I feel like now we've seen the whole thing. I wanna I wanna know what your take is on it. You think okay. You think the plan is justified? What are you talking? You're just trying to say that so that I'll rant about it. What do you mean I their said plan your is justified? Criticism was justified. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean their plan I didn't mean their plan was justified. So Nothing justifies trying to take over Earth. What are you talking I about? I deeply misunderstood. I thought you meant that their <laughs> no, plan even strategically sound, not like morally justified. We were just saying you thought it was a good Oh, yeah. No, I meant her criticisms were justified. Yes, they were. The Yerks had a lot of issues with their plan. Yeah, the Yerks plan is very dumb. I mean, for, like, lots of reasons. But also, I I have criticisms for both of the possible plans that we are presented with for taking over the Earth. Uh I think there are also a number of other plans that could have been smarter. But the two that we're presented with are Visser 1's subtle takeover, a couple people at a time, using a cult based in Southern California. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is a terrible plan. Not least of reason being that it's going to take for f***ing ever. Like, what? Yeah. Not that I'm saying cults in Southern California can't take off. They definitely can. Lots of people are Scientologists. But in terms of, like, wide scale, we're trying to get everyone on Earth so that every human has a yerk or every yerk has a human body... That's starting quite small. <laughs> and then we have the Visser 3 approach, which we see towards the ending of like, take over a bunch of people in the military, bring in the bug fighters, shoot up the whole town, you know, drive people in newly made subway tunnels into the Yerk pool to infest them. And that works better in terms of like mass infestation, right? It gets a lot more people infested in the last like month of the war then probably the year before that, if I'm understanding the, you know, how many people are infested, which we never really get, but I'm kind of, you know, making some assumptions there. So that's a better plan in terms of mass infestation, but it relies on taking over, you know, high level military targets. It relies a lot on fear and 
you know, humans not being able to get their act together to defend themselves, which may be true. But, you know, there's a lot of assumptions there. I'm not really sure that that's the best way to go about this plan. I suggest that there are other methods Mm -hmm. of doing this, like starting with a, you know, small infiltration troop with a yerk in a Ziploc bag going to talk to everyone in the, you know, in the G6 summit that happens in California last year. Like, better plans exist. Pretty much. Yeah. They could have used a lot more Ziplocs. Well, yeah, exactly. Or yerk box or whatever it's going to be. But like, so I think that their plans are very dumb. And I do not think that I have been convinced throughout the series that anyone has any idea what they're doing. But I guess I also wish we had the Yerk Chronicles for a number of reasons. But I'd like to see how they did this to the Geds and then the Taxons. Like we, you know, we sort of see how they do the Horkajir and it does seem to be more of a Visser 3, like cut and run, bring your bug fighters in and just blow a bunch of shit up yeah, and infest yeah. the people who aren't dead. But I don't think that's probably how they did it on the Taxon homeworld. And like, how are they doing it on the Anadi homeworld? Like, they don't have a system. And I am a systems oh, person. I want them to have <laughs> a process. Or at least a, like, if you have these, these like, five levels for the different kinds oh, of civilizations. Yeah. Classes of species. Then probably you should have a, like, and here's how we infest species one, levels one through three or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know that they need to have the same approach for every species, but like they do seem to just be extremely incompetent. And yeah, the idea that like either you can go in secret and go very slowly and ineffectively, or you can just blow stuff up and but still mostly just Southern California, like doesn't really make sense, is really a nod to the like the needs of the genre to let these kids still be effective, which is actually that's one of my big problems with K. Applegate's letter to fans after the ending this idea that like she needs to have like total integrity and like be realistic about the end of the war when like your villains were freaking incompetent like they like narrative needs like completely hamstrung the yurks like they could have done so much worse if we weren't trying to make these kids win so you're telling me that like oh no but we have to be realistic like you're being extremely selectively realistic and that's not to say she shouldn't have ended it the way she did but like Come on, let's not pretend that we're depicting a reasonable war here. Yeah. On the other hand, the other argument is that uh, to deliver you the message that that they wanted to, they had to hook you with convention and then flip the table at the end. Well, yeah, that's exactly what they did. They hooked right. us with convention and then we're like, what, you were surprised that this table turned over? How dare you be surprised? This is totally yeah. how war works. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're bit, saying. It's a little bit um, duplicitous. I don't think she meant it that way, but... Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I actually think I really do like works that play with audience expectations Mm -hmm. and sort of like that, like, give you what you need, not what you want attitude. Yeah. I definitely like fiction that does that. Yeah. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue she should have just edited it happily or something, but I just, you know, don't be surprised. Don't act like, of course, this is always how it was going to end. Like, no, it just is not that way. And there's like a, like the, they had to retcon Eric's character in order to have the ending sort of hammer things home in the way they wanted Uh, to, right? So like there's, there's a middle, there's a middle ground. There's, there's room, there's room for improvement. It wasn't a perfect (laughs) ending, but it it was a, it was a. And certainly if they'd been able to write more books leading up to the ending, I'm sure it would have been a better ending. Yeah. What were we talking about? Oh yeah. The York Uh, strategy. York strategy. It's terrible. The end. (laughs) 
<laughs> so like my takeaway from what you were saying, you were saying just now, Gray, is like, I kind of feel like the only thing that, so your Chronicles would have loved to see it, but the only thing that makes sense to me is that both the Andalites and the Yurks have an advantage in talking up the strength of the and ability of the Yurk Empire. And it was always a fairly brittle war effort hmm. because the fact that it, it comes down to one pool, Single point one ship, yeah. yeah, and the empire crumbles just makes me think that all that stuff about there are millions of Yurks and they're spreading all throughout the galaxy and there's no way we contain them and Earth is one of many fronts. Like some of that information must have been unreliable. Okay, okay. And it's like a propaganda campaign. And of course the Andalite military wants the Yurks to appear mm-hmm. as fearsome as possible. But then what the heck were the Andalites doing just hanging out at home if they weren't fighting on Earth and there's no other significant <laughs> front? Like what were they doing? Learning how to be mystics. <laughs> we thought that maybe so one, there's another thing that never gets paid off is how some of the Andalites were compromised by the Yurks. Yeah. Which we yeah. learned about in eight and we saw in eighteen, but doesn't mm-hmm. come up in the finale at all. There's also the idea that we had in 52 or whatever about once the Yurks start invading Earth, the Andalites can just wait for them to all move in and then blow up Earth. Mm -hmm. So they're just, rather than fighting the Yurks on Earth, the only place they're really invading right now, they're like, we'll just wait for multiple years for them to be firmly established and then blow it all up. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It's not it's not very much fun I to be like, with, here are the ways that the series doesn't no, add up. But right, I agree. Yeah. I agree with your take overall that the, the Yurks needed a better plan. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is how sort of like nineties the sort of nineties look on war is from this series. And one mm-hmm. of the ways in which it does that is the unquestioning USA is the only country in the world oh, that matters yeah. thinking mm. at the end. And the kind of like yep. post national but USA really stands in for everyone. That's the ending the of the series didn't is get paid off. What world leader was already in? Oh yeah, yeah. Totally yeah. Forgot about that that. Info? Didn't happen. No, oh. I mean, so so the, the the wild thing is this comes up a, a few ways in the ending. One is that Marco refers to Jake as a, or maybe I think it's Marco, but maybe Axe. Jake is a hero for all humans and not just one nation. <laughs> Even though, as far as we know, the Yerks only invaded Southern California, right? <laughs> Except for that bit in, in the David trilogy. There's like no evidence that Yerks were anywhere else on Earth. Yeah. In, in the last two books, right? Yeah. It really is. And then everyone comes together at the International Criminal Court or whatever it was actually called in the 90s to put Esplin on trial for crimes against humanity. But like, there's no understanding of like global capitalism or geopolitics at all it's like the existence of this alien threat has unified everyone into like oh you know all the things Mm. esplin did were crimes against all of humanity even though again it seems to have been only a state of california (laughs) problem so like the juris the fact that the jurisdiction went all the way to the top right like there wasn't even some throwaway line about like and you know it took us six months to clean up all of the like Rebel Yurk factions in France and Chile and, you know, Australia. Like, there is none of that, (laughs) right? And, like, even the... Now we'll cut back to CNN for, like, a report that in the 90s, CNN was like, oh, it's one of the big TV networks. And, Mm. like, you know, TV networks are, like, sources of truth for everybody instead of, like, the world that we live in now where CNN is one of the more partisan sources of news because everyone lives in their own kind of Mm. news bubble, Mm. right? Like, and the fact that... 
talking to the Andalite electorate as like one group oh, through yeah. one yeah. single media channel is like the thing that will convince them. Whereas like if you had to talk to all of humanity and like get on a global stage and be like, hey, we're aliens, but we're not bad. You literally could not do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way to reach like people don't have this like centralized media in the way that they did in the 90s anymore right it's all fairly quaint feeling you just have to hope it went viral yeah exactly i guess yeah and that's also partly partly genre but i like the idea that it's partly the era also and i also i love that in viscer we get that nod to like why are the yurks in the u.s and it's like oh because edris watched a lot of right like tv coming out of hollywood and decided that california was the center of the world i blame mork and mindy the series doesn't really rebut that, but it is yeah. fun that they lampshade it. And we talked about like how sort of the idea of a war crimes trial is quaint, but I wanted to emphasize again that like the UN does go after war crimes, but like mostly against leaders of African countries. Mm. And it's very much a like, mm. there's a very valid imperialist critique of what international law is trying to do. Mm. And, you know, it'd be... <laughs> A fairly long conversation to to go into about what the United States has done since the Animorphs ended in response to 9-11. But there's very little... They even talk about terrorism, right? As, like, the thing that morphing is used to fight. Yeah. Right? But, like, th there's no acknowledgement that... It's like the wars continue thing is like, oh, we have to get to this even bigger cosmic threat. Mm. And it's not like... Humans are going to use morphing tech to fight each other and kill each yeah. other in new ways, the way that technology has always enabled throughout human history, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that has never really been one of the series' core themes, because like humanity is is universal in this book, the way that the Andalites are universal, the Yurks are universal. Bit, no, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is true that this series the, is extremely, at least the last book, probably for simplicity's sake, but it's very optimistic about human response to all of this stuff. Like, yeah. Andalites came and were tourists, and it seemed fine. Like, people were people were fine with the idea of aliens. Like, that is not how it would go. Very much the thought yeah, that yeah. I had, actually, was like, oh. There would be such, like, everyone would be terrified. Like, not so much of specific individual aliens, but, like, they would feel, like, insecure about, like, what does this mean for us and, like, the galaxy? There would be widespread, like, panics, and I'm sure would, like, certain disadvantaged groups would end up acting as lightning rods for that panic, mm -hmm. I'm sure, as always happens, and yeah, none. we just don't see any of that. Okay, so I have two things that I want to say about that. One, uh... We don't have a great history of giving people that white America thinks of as other reservations in the West. It's just, mm. it's just not great. So, like, I'm sure the Horpagier will be fine. They have swords on their hands. But, like, eh, it's not a, not a great thing that the U.S. has done. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, I wanted to ask you guys whether you think K.A. Applegate has a generally positive view of humanity versus a more cynical view of humanity. That is fascinating. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm i inclined to say a generally positive view, but not a wholly positive view. Like the writing voice behind these series seems to recognize the complexity of it, but to come down on the side of like, but we're still worth worth something. We're still, we still have value and there's something fundamentally good, even if not unmixed good at the center of humanity. Yeah, I think it's that there's definitely that kind of humanism of like every individual is important and valuable. Mm. But I do think they seem to be a little cynical about human society, maybe. 
I don't um, know. The 54 is pretty positive about... Well, I, I'm thinking of more the, like, at one point when Marco was like, these people on the streets, they just don't know how bad things could get, like, if we weren't here to protect them. Mm. Like, people are naive. Maybe mm. naive isn't... It's not a cynical thing, but that people are kind of, like, coddled and not able to deal with harsh realities. It does map a little bit to the ending they put on this series and the ending of that letter to fans that like, no, these things are actually really bad. You should know about this. Don't just ask me to change the ending of this series. Like, it's important that you face how horrible war is and then go off and, you know, vote against it. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, this idea like, no, I need to put the truth in your face. Like, there's something a little bit confrontational about that. Yeah. What do you, What's your take, Gray? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, an interesting question based on the different ways that people are described because... It does seem to me she pretty generally comes down on the side of people are good, actually. Otherwise, the ending yeah. of, you know, peacefully, as Jenny was saying, like, peacefully allowing Andalite tourists, eh, maybe. That seems to be the kind of thing that you would write if you thought people were generally good and trying their best. I do think that she provides a little bit of nuance in, um, like, in Visser, when we see different people and there are different responses to being infested, and there's a lot of different motivations for that. And, mm. you know, some people have very widely disparate experiences, and some people aren't great, but most people are, is kind of, I think, where, where they come down on this. But it is a... interesting. I don't think they would have written the series they wrote with, like, five random kids. Because at the beginning, I think they probably were mostly random. I think this idea that the Elemis chose them came in a lot later. Five random kids learn about aliens and end up putting themselves in danger over and over again when they could just walk away in order to save the world. Like, that's a very that's optimistic true. And, view. Of yeah, that's a really right. good point. And that the, just their reaction to Elfangor, like, he's mm. just like, he seems like such a mensch and we're going to help him. <laughs> <laughs> he's so clearly good and Mr. 3 is so clearly evil. You know, Jake and Rachel are Jewish. I'm really sad that none of them called Elfangor a mensch. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Ted, I just thought you were flipping through the the book, um, the part where everyone's trying to decide, like, did Jake commit war crimes? And Axe's answer is kind of like, doesn't it matter, like, what your people decides? And your people have clearly decided you did not. And you could read that as cynical, as, like, you know, society's decisions are arbitrary Mm -hmm. and, like, don't correspond with real ethics. But, like, I'm not sure the text quite presents it that way. I think it is almost a voice in, I think it's a voice in support of Jake, sort of, that, like, well, human society has decided that this is fine. And I think that it, that is said at least semi-earnestly in the text. That's interesting. My takeaway from it was more like, you need forgiveness from others. You can't, like, there's no, there's no real right or wrong if you just think about the action in isolation. Anyway, I did want to talk on about that conversation. Mostly what I want to say is I think the the scene where Jake, um, they force Jake to morph a dolphin and he walks out of the ocean and he and Cassie and Marco and Axe talk about what he did and whether he was right to do it feels like the thematic climax of the series mm. because so many issues come up. And there are no easy answers. Yeah. So it narratively, it accomplishes Jake going from like hating himself so much he's an ineffective witness to being at peace enough that he can move forward. Mm -hmm. But it is not written to me as like authoritatively we are forgiving Jake for what he did or like what Jake was good. It's Mm -hmm. written a lot more as like 
Jake made a choice that haunts him. Marco makes a strong argument that he should forgive himself. And Cassie can't quite sign on to that, right? She She's like a little more, she tries a little bit, but she can't totally sign on to it. And Axe mm-hmm. offers a third perspective. And then Jake just like goes on with his life. Yeah. Um, yeah. But hmm. so Jake just starts it off. She called me a war criminal, I said. She's wrong, Cassie said. Did what you had to do, man, Marco said. But then Jake is like, okay, tell me. How is Visser one evil and I'm not? Then Cassie says, <laughs> Cassie says, you were the leader. And if you were a war criminal, then so are we for following you. <laughs> I've had to make my own peace with things, which is a terrible argument. And Jake is like, hanging on her words mm-hmm. and remembering kissing her and it's like right he's like oh my god cassie please forgive me like absolve me absolve me right um but then she's like you can't equate victim and perpetrator jake is like okay as long as you're playing defense you can't commit a war crime that sounds like it's you're just saying it's the winner who makes the rules right and then jake is like okay there are a lot of close calls and wars but this isn't one of them it's pretty clear that we were the victims and they made war on us And then Jake is able to like take a step back and say, okay, fine for the big picture. We're the good guys, whatever, whatever. And then Jake is like, okay, but I wasn't thinking about how I was justified. I was thinking about how the Yerks are subhuman. Mm -hmm. Um, And Marco is like, okay, well, it doesn't matter what you were thinking. It matters what you did. Right. Mm -hmm. So which is a controversial thing. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's like gets to the heart of ethics, I think, right? And Marco says, you were acting in self-defense, you were enjoying the fact that you were winning, those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And then Jake notices, Cassie seemed less certain, far less. She seemed ready to join in with Marco, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. She tried to hide it, but there was this look in her eyes, this sideways look at me. And then Axe says, I'm not human, but this is what you were saying, Jenny. It's up to your own people to decide the morality of your actions. Their decision seems clear. My people agree. Um, we, the Animorphs, under your leadership, stopped the Yerk threat. We saved Earth. We may have saved my people as well. Surely we saved many, many and light lives. And then Jake is like, I was suddenly exhausted, worn out all the way deep down, and everyone had run out of things to say. <laughs> it is such a perfect conclusion for Animorphs. Yeah. This thing where like there is no absolute truth because there are no good decisions in a war yeah and like you could right you could come away from that thinking you could come away from that thinking any number of things about the truth of jake's action Mm -hmm. and i love that the text provides you scaffolding for a lot of different ideas but there's no authoritative answer that jake Mm -hmm. is or is not a war criminal yeah this is something I just I love about the Animorphs so much and like why it was so intriguing to me to think about these ethical ideas that it was introducing me to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess when we talk about the ending, right, like this this conversation is what matters the most to me. Like mm. I really admire the cliffhanger ending and mm-hmm. like kind of that really grim sort of like the grim through line that happens. But I think that you could have ended it before that final three years later sequence and just had it be like a more meditative mm, Jake is, yeah. you know, He's able to see Visser One get locked up, and and people would still probably be frustrated that Visser One goes to prison <laughs> instead of getting killed by Rachel, right? Like I think that's <laughs> uh-huh. some of the the fan reaction too. Hmm. Or to by Tobias, kill Tobias's father, killed yeah. Axe's brother. Yeah, what happened to Axe's revenge fantasy? Like that's oh, wow. like such a big. You killed my brother, and by end of like custom, I must kill you. Yeah. And that doesn't even come up at all when he and Marco are there. Yeah, right. He's like, I could cut him in half now, and Marco's like. Probably shouldn't. Right. That's it. <laughs> that's really interesting, yeah. actually. Yeah. I do want to talk about all the characters' arcs, and that's 
I wonder if that's a significant change for Axe. So do we want to get into character stuff? Yeah, let's talk about characters first. All right. What should we talk about? Who should we talk about? I don't know. I kind of want to talk about Axe now just because we like <laughs> just talked about this thing. Like, All right. Yeah. He's certainly not the most controversial character arc. I think we'll have a lot to say about at least a couple of them. But I kind of like I think he gets a lot less attention in this this whole ending, yeah. even though he has the, the third to last book. The five main characters and Axe. Oh. <laughs> no, he's an animal. I'm sorry, Axe. I love you. So the thing with Axe, his arc we've talked about is him becoming more and more human, like really siding with the Animorphs against like whatever Andalite interference there is. And he really takes a wonderful stand for that in 54. I'm really bummed that like, he seems to just go back to Andalite military and be fine with that. Yeah. Not to like miss, he doesn't seem to miss Earth. Like maybe we just didn't see that side of him, but like, yeah, he's just like off Captain Kirking around the galaxy and it's awesome. Don't get me wrong, but it feels very disconnected from the acts that we saw learning to be human, learning human. Yeah. I mean, my whole prediction for his arc was entirely related to his being torn between being a human and being an Andalite for, like, the whole book. And, like, what side is he going to come down on? And I was like, obviously, if his whole arc is becoming more and more human, (laughs) uh, then he will stay with the humans. Nope. And he did choose the humans in the the showdown with the Andalites. Mm -hmm. But he didn't choose them for his own life. Like, afterwards, he... I guess he was a liaison for a while, and then he went off with Andalite military, which is cool, but, like, not choosing humans. Well, yeah, there's very little in the text to say how he got there right yeah, but yeah. i think it's super interesting i also find it disappointing but in like a fun way because like yeah. it's so plausible that the Angelite military would just like he kind of snaps back to who he wanted to be at the beginning of the series oh, that's so true right and like yeah. he's like he got everything that he wanted he's the, yeah. he's a bigger an even bigger hero than his brother that he looked <laughs> up to and he becomes this kirk-like figure like that is a really happy ending for him, but it's also one where he kind of like it's easier than yeah. He's not grappling with this two these two sides of him, this human side that he let develop. Yeah, like these and allegiances. He does seem to have become a very thoughtful leader and person, and to have this like yen for adventure that like probably stems from you know his like a lot of the things that he learned on Earth because he's still pretty young. We have to yeah. remember, and yet he seems like very. Mature and I think capable. He's definitely thoughtful and he's not like his takeaway is to not listen to his own people as an authority. Mm. Right? But he's 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 still so like he, he's he, like reckless. He, he unlearns the like naive Andalites are perfect approach that right, he has at the beginning. Right. Yeah. He kind of becomes Jake. He's like an Andalite Jake. Huh. Interesting. If Jake hadn't been shattered by being the leader. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of a Jake like yeah. But yeah, he doesn't get in he doesn't get in touch with his human side. Right. He yeah, kind of gets in touch with to, his Andalites. He's willing side. to let go of that. And maybe if he hadn't been taken by the one, he would have ended up spending more time on Earth at some point in the future. Because sure. this might be sort of, it's only three years later. Like, he might still be snapping back and, you know, enjoying being part of Andalite society again. And maybe he would have gotten to a point where he missed Earth and wanted to at least go on a long vacation. Yeah. And I mean, maybe losing Jake and Tobias was enough of a sort of severance that it was harder to make that transition. Hmm. Yeah. It's not clear if. It's funny because Tobias and Axe are, you know, call each other Shorms and have had some really significant interactions. But like, it seems like that connection is easy for the series to drop, maybe just because Tobias is so focused on Rachel. 
Like, we don't really see mm. any follow-up on that friendship in the ending. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to talk more about your favorite axe moments? <sighs> or favorite axe moments. Other retrospective axe things? Axe learning a sense of humor is my favorite axe moment just every time it happens. <laughs> that arc was so good. Yeah. Every time axe interacted with a Cinnabon, the, uh, the one bite, one bun, one tray, it cannot be my fault if there was any confusion moment. <laughs> And him at the movies, discovering chocolate globules. Ugh, gross. I just, I'd forgotten about that, but yeah, that's gross. (laughs) And the whole Axe-Jake partnership, the way that it grows Mm -hmm. and develops, like it is a little tiresome that he's always betraying the Animorphs and then coming back to them. (laughs) But I feel like every time he and Jake are all the closer for it. And And he really comes through for them in the ending when he's like, yeah, I'm going to offer this challenge. And if I lose, I'll be exiled and have my tail cut off. And we know how he feels about that. (laughs) And yet he's willing to do it. Yeah. Least favorite axe moment before. Couldn't he cut his tail off and then just morph out? I don't know. It seems to not be. (laughs) Who even knows? It's very confusing. That point has never Uh, been clarified. Maybe Andalites built something into their morphing tech. So that vehicles could never get the their tail. tails back. <laughs> so all the animals seems have like the kind of thing I'd like tails? to do. What are you talking yes. about? They have tail bones. Just check. I don't know. If, I guess Tobias has a tail. Yeah. Anyway, that is nonsense. Yes, it is. Moving past it. <laughs> nonsense. Least favorite axe moment was book forty, not twenty eight. I mean, twenty eight is not a great book. Um, I guess Axe is great in 28 with his television mania. Book 40 when he's like, no, people with disabilities suck. That is my least favorite Axe moment. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. What about the moment when he forgets why Alaron has a Kafit bird morph? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not going to hold that against him so much as the books. Yeah. <laughs> Let's blame the books for that one. Oh, man. Yeah. What do we want to talk about next? Let's talk about Tobias. Deshaun. Okay. Oh, Tobias. I love, like, every Tobias book, maybe. The later ones I love a little bit less. I am super disappointed by how Tobias gets reduced to sad Rachel boyfriend in the ending. Because when I was re-listening to the first episode of Anamorphology, the secret leader Tobias theory is born in that book. And he's like, we've talked about how he's the soul of the Animorphs. And it's a real bummer that... And he, he kind of becomes the heart a little bit at the end, but that he's not really that... His character isn't that integral he to the end He sort of game. the broken heart of the Animorphs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I feel like he... The tragedy of his ending is a little bit reduced to Rachel died so we can never be happy. Yeah. And, like, he's a complicated guy. He's got yeah. a lot of feelings about his human Andalite hawk heritage and identity I'm sure he has complicated feelings about Lauren. Yeah, who just right, is like, absent in the end. Um, so I I mourn that we only get that one chapter in the last book. Yeah. yeah, he's like, he's really representing the tragedy. And I do love that he seems to have this life beyond it. He seems to hang out with the Free Horpager. But like, that's only a little bit. Like, it was a little bit better than I expected based on my memories. But like, yeah, yeah it's mostly his one tether to humanity yeah. is gone. He might, like, I feel like... Books 3 to 43 are a really amazing character arc for Tobias. Because hmm. 43 ends with him and Rachel on the beach being like, you know, like Cassie is completely devastated in that, th- yeah. that book. And she's like, it's not okay. And Tobias and Rachel are kind of like, you know what? We found a happy medium where like maybe the war will eventually grind us down. And indeed it does end tragically <laughs> for them. Yeah. But they have each other and that's kind of okay. And they're at peace with that. Yeah. Right. So like 
going from the trauma of being a bird boy to like I found Rachel and we're together and that's okay is like a really good five book arc. I don't I feel like it doesn't quite break down that easily into that just because I feel like every individual Tobias book is such a good arc for him. And Ooh, yeah. when you put them together, it's a little more like, wait, didn't he already do this arc? But like, they're all so good. Yeah. And it's always like him grappling with these difficult ideas that of course you can't really get over that easily and him deciding it's complicated and then he can kind of deal with it. But like, yeah, it doesn't stay easy. And so my argument for 43 being the end is just because he finally deals with his decision to become yeah. a hawk, yeah. which I find yeah. like is a fun closure. But yeah. I, I get your point. Court to bias. I don't know. I He's my favorite character still. And I agree that the ending is really disappointing because we know so much more about him at the end than we did about the beginning. Like, unlike the other characters, I think the way that his backstory is given kind of in almost flashbacks, mm-hmm. like sort of these small mm-hmm, memories mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. what happened to his parents and then to him is a more intriguing way to do it than here is Jake. He has two parents and a brother and right, plays yeah. basketball. Like, you know, it's a little bit more of an interesting story um, and storytelling method. The other thing, though, is I think it's... How do I want to say this? Nice is not the right word, so I want to find a better word. Um, I am glad that Rachel is memorialized through Tobias because she mm-hmm. deserves to be memorialized. And Jake's pain is very self-focused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His decision, yeah. Whereas... Tobias is mourning Rachel for herself. And as we've talked about throughout the podcast, Tobias loves and accepts Rachel exactly as she is for who she is in all of her complexity and is much more caring and aware of that than anyone else. So while I think it's a disappointing ending for Tobias, it seems a fitting ending for Rachel that she is so mourned by someone who knew her so perfectly. And I also think it, like, maybe it would have been fun to see more facets of Tobias at the end, but it also makes perfect sense to me that, like, this person that he loves more than anyone in the world, like, he has his mom, yeah, but, like, they kind of just met again, and, like, he has this very strong relationship with Rachel, and she dies, and of course that's what his life is going to be about for a while. Mm -hmm. Like, that that makes sense. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I do, like, I also appreciate he's kind of, like, the the grieving partner left behind in wartime, Mm. which I think it's not usually a teenage boy who's in that (laughs) role. Is it usually a red-tailed hawk? No. So yeah, it's nice. I don't know. I do like what we get. I think it's like if there'd been more. I feel like the most Tobiasy moment of the ending is actually in 52 when he shows up to Axe and he's like, they're going to fry us, aren't they? And he's like, I don't hate anyone. And he sort of does the thing he's so good at of like suspending judgment and holding multiple things in his mind at the same time yeah like if tobias and jake had been able to talk more i think that there would have been a lot to say between them yeah Hmm. Um, he might have been able to help jake a little bit yeah he would be a good therapist yes he would (laughs) yes million percent all right i feel like we're, we're getting down to uh more difficult ones yeah well let's let's complete the um the finesse team let's talk about marco 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 gets everything he wants he really does. I, I think Marco's arc is actually one of my favorites because the, he's like so motivated by his experience having to like his experience of the world is like a, as like a tough place where bad things can happen. Mm-hmm. He's so much more aware of that at the beginning of the series and it makes him like more cautious and more strategic mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. 
oh, we're all going to get killed. That juxtaposed with his super optimistic, I can save my mom and we can everything can be happy. Mm-hmm. And then like the fact that that gets paid off 10 books before the end of the series <laughs> and then he kind of coasts to the finish line is like really satisfying. And mm-hmm. I really like that he also kind of like acts sort of rubber bands back to his original personality and just does the stuff mm. that you'd always imagine Marco would do. And he is changed by the war, but he's like most able to kind of like go out and be be himself mm. compared to the other human animorphs. Yeah, he did already have some pretty good defense mechanisms in place. I I don't know. I, I feel like I want him to have been a little bit more affected by the war than he was. Like, I'm sure he was like having nightmares and stuff during the war. Did that stop after? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It also felt like, like, of course, the Marco that we have seen in these books would like have kind of a terrible attitude about women and just like enjoy the superficial things in life. But I don't know. I kind of wanted to see a little more from him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it very much feels like, I mean, I think he articulates it in one of his last chapters that kind of like he suddenly felt like the last three years had been a daydream. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I think he just he gets to live in a fantasy world because when you're rich and famous, you can do that. Right. Like I've had a three year like. Yeah, I mean, Bender isn't really the right word, but like he got to just have a a three year indulgence of like all of these dreams that he had always had about being rich and famous. Yeah. Yeah. Three. So the the last book, we see them kind of one year later than two years later. So three years after the war. Mm -hmm. The war itself lasts three years, right? Yeah. That is an interesting choice. Hmm. It's interesting that the war lasts three years and takes 54 books and these next three years take like three quarters of a book. Yeah. It's sort of Marco's thing where it's like all so much less real now. Well, I mean, and it makes sense. It's like, I don't know. There's like, there's a whole thing about how we form memories and the way that memories, especially traumatic memories are stored. None of which I know enough about to spout off about it. But I wonder if there's something in there about three years of traumatic memories in this space are being like that they're moving forward in time whether or not they're able to emotionally move forward with their lives and it Mm -hmm. kind of makes sense to me that marco who had so much growth over the course of the series i mean he didn't quite drink respect women juice to the extent that i would like him to but like he did get a little bit better he's still a child in so many ways and i you know it seems reasonable to me that he might be the one who is most willing to close his eyes to that and just be like, yeah, never happened. Like how nice that we can just skate over that whole three year nightmare. And now I'm awake and I got some pool and uh, girls and it's great. And like, let's just do this thing now and move on. And that means he's turning away. And like, I don't think that this is necessarily intended, but he's turning away from what he was fighting for. Right. He's not having a nice Thanksgiving dinner with Peter and Ava, right? Like, Mm. they're not even mentioned, right? So, like, I bet dealing with his mother, even though she was what he was fighting for, is really uncomfortable, right? So maybe he's choosing not to process all that stuff. That's a really good point. Not to deal with what he did to Nora. Like, I I don't know. (laughs) And I like how they give us the sort of, He's like, that probably sounds like it would be really empty or whatever, but it's not. I'm actually happy. And then it does prove to be a little bit empty at the end. So it's not just a yeah. simplistic like, I got fame now and I'm empty inside. It's like, a, hey, this is really fun. Oh, wait, maybe this isn't quite as much fun as I thought. Yeah. Okay, I'm a little bit bored. Well, he's kind of kidding himself, and, yeah. which is like a Marco yeah, thing yeah, yeah. to do. It's such a Marco thing. Yeah. yeah, I really do actually think the ending is is so, so solidly in character. Yeah. It's a really interesting... I mean, we'll we'll talk about this. The Animorphs' endings, they're all alone. Mm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like the Animorphs are a band of five and six, and then yeah, after the war, yeah. Rachel's dead, and they have to they all go their separate ways for three years, and mm-hmm. then like the narrative structure mm-hmm. is Jake gets all the survivors except Cassie together for a new mm-hmm. mission, mm-hmm. right? So like. Yeah. It's sort of narratively, they do all have to be alone. But, like, it's so interesting that we know them as a group. And yet, in their lives after the war, they're, like... The the Animorphs are disbanded when mm-hmm. the war ends, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, like, they are all kind of left alone. And they haven't actually developed relationships that exist beyond <laughs> that, right? Like, Cassie says to Marco... They were relying on each other. Yeah, they're like, we support. were never that close. We, we, we knew <laughs> each other through Jake, which is, like... Absurd. Yeah. Because yeah, of ridiculous. course they're so close and they know each other so, so much well. closer but, than they are with anyone else in the but world. But it makes sense that you would think that because it's like what you know we, they aren't what reason do you have no. to stay in sure. touch now yeah. that you're not fighting aliens every day and you could go be going off becoming a doctor or working with Steven Spielberg or whatever <laughs> your heart desires. Sure. Yeah, the loss of that community, that like incredibly tight knit community of six is yeah. really yeah. Well, I mean, that was what, one thing that was so devastating to me as a reader, and it really is devastating to the characters. Should we talk about Jake next, then? Because he's sort of, he was the the first character. He's the one who has a connection to every other Animorph mm-hmm, in book mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. And certainly the story of the last book is, without Jake, they're not a group, right? Like, that's huh. that's one mm-hmm. way to read it. I don't think that that's true or necessarily canonical, but like... yeah. Jake is the one who's able to unite them. I don't know that it wouldn't have happened without him, but I mean, Tobias kind of says that it wouldn't have. Like, he's yeah. the one who's like, no, you're the leader. Hmm. And he is, like, we talked so much in the early books about how he's the point of connection. He's the one who, like, understands all of their emotions and needs and reactions. Mm-hmm. No, not, he doesn't always understand their emotions, but he understands their reactions and, like, how to deal with them. Yeah. And what he can't handle, he farms out to Cassie and... <laughs> You know, yeah, he is this incredibly important hub of the Animorphs. Two things that I really like about Jake's arc are, one, that he starts out the generic middle grade every teen, mm-hmm. and he ends up committing a war crime. And the through line is, like, no matter who you are, that the hero can get to this point of, like, terribleness. I also really like that his, quote-unquote, generic defaultness I think does inform the ways in which he unravels at the end Mm. because his motivating story is I can go back to normal and have my life where like everything's Mm. perfect. And when he loses that, he can't handle it. He, he's not as resilient as some of the other Animorphs are too. Mm. Yeah. Like especially, especially Tobias and Marco, but also, also the others in their own way. Mm. And like that he can't have. Did you say Tobias is resilient? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he ends up like, abandoning humanity and living as a bird in the wilderness because Rachel died. I mean, during the fight. Oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, like, it feels very white male default to react poorly to having your, like, perfect American dream mm, snatched from mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. Like, this, he's like, well, I can keep fighting because I know I'm going to get my brother back and have my parents and I'm going to marry Cassie and everything's going to be mm. perfect, just like yeah. I deserve. And then when he realizes he can't have that in the end game of the series, he really takes a turn for the worse. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've talked a lot about Jake over the past few episodes. Yeah, it's we almost kind of like... already have. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, as we've discussed, the last five books are just Jake books with other people talking about him. I would be really excited to go revisit the beginning of Megamorphs 3 when Jake is like mm. Nazi Jake because because <laughs> that like that's almost foreshadowing like the direction that he takes in the final book mm. where he's mm. like the 
authoritarian little Napoleon, like, you know, yeah. doing his thing. <laughs> like, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm ordering you to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, force Eric to do stuff at, you know, gunpoint. And... Yeah, I feel like the way he takes responsibility for everything also, like, the way he feels like everything was his fault. Like, he's taking so much on his shoulders and like, yeah, he was the leader, but there's almost something, I don't know, he's not really thinking about the agency that everyone else on the team had in all these things, mm -hmm. which also feels a little bit... I mean, I guess white male, you know, Americans are not known for taking responsibility for things, but like in a different way, they do, you know, take take agency for themselves. And he's a little bit doing that. Like when Cassie's like, okay, if you're a war criminal, so are all of we like, that's probably not something he's actually been thinking about. Right. Yeah. He's like, oh, they were just they were just following my orders. It's my mm, fault. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> that's a really good point. All right. Do we want to talk about Cassie or do we want to talk about Rachel? want to talk about Cassie next and leave Rachel for last. Cassie's the best Animorph. I love her so much. Cassie did nothing wrong. <laughs> but you... Fight me, Greg. Wait, didn't she commit war crimes? Didn't she just say that? <laughs> no, okay. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to start something. I mean, listen, I'll take you on, but like... You've been here for the last several episodes, so you know that's not true. <laughs> I love Cassie's arc so much because she makes an incredibly foolish choice in book 19 that pays off beautifully. And she goes through a whole war and then she makes another really, really foolish, optimistic choice. And it breaks bad in a lot of ways for her and maybe leads to the death of her best friend. And I feel like it's a real consistent character arc. And I love the way that the she I feel like her perspective on how consequences don't matter is very consistent and interesting to think about, even when she is proven dramatically wrong by circumstance. But weirdly, the the thing with the, the box and Tom at the end is her sort of saying like, but what if this does have this consequence that we need it to have? Like she's sort of making a gamble, maybe sort of. I mean, this is just her justification after the fact. But I feel like that that decision is confusing because in the book it is presented, where it happens, it is presented as she doesn't want Jake to kill Tom. And we're like, but that doesn't make sense. You could still take the box from Tom. And then later, which is very much the consequences don't matter. I just can't let you kill your brother. And then later it's like, well, I thought maybe you would have this like trickle through effect in the Yurk Empire, which if so, that was the absolute stupidest way to give the box to the Yurks. Like, please come up with a better way to do it. I totally respect your thinking in this area that like, maybe the Yurks need to see that morphing is a possibility. But like, this is a hundred thousand million percent not the way to do it. Also, the Yerks already... Sorry, we're not going to relitigate her decision. I mean, I feel like it's kind of central to her arc. And I know, like, I feel like we've gotten a lot of pushback in the comments from people who are like, well, you know, all of the Animorphs, like Cassie's not a Mary Sue. All of the Animorphs make bad decisions that end up playing out well. And I really feel like Cassie's decision in 50 is in a different category for a couple of reasons. I think it's different because... She is not, certainly as presented in that book, there's sort of some retroactive, she was thinking this thing, but she is not even choosing between two difficult things the way she is in 19. She's only choosing based on this, this weird mystical feeling she has, and I use that word deliberately. And the other thing that makes it different is that it just, it's so hard for me in the context of this decision not to step into the Doyleist perspective of like, okay, so they needed the Yerks to like get the morphing cube and like, how the heck would that happen? Um, Cassie will make a decision. And then they didn't do any of the work necessary to scaffold that or like make it seem like a reasonable thing. Mm. There, there were so many different ways to do it. And I feel like she sort of 
did it for like plot reasons and then it was pinned on her like intuition. And I feel like the plot did Cassie such a disservice, which is, you know, it's weird to talk about. Cassie only is what she has written in the books, but. Yeah, no, I think in hearing what you're saying, I feel like even my summary of the arc, it does a disservice to her to reduce her to her her two foolish decisions. Mm. Um, And I think that the fact that the discussion around Cassie centers so much on what your take on like what happened in book 50 is also Mm -hmm. frustrating. I think the fact that it was written in such an unfounded way is what makes it so controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? So like it, it definitely, your point is totally valid. But like, if you take another stab at it, she's the one who, in a totally non-supernatural way, she <laughs> sees the big picture and she's the first of the Animorphs to recognize the humanity that exists in the Yerks. Yeah. And she's the the one who is most clear-sighted about the costs of war and what it's doing to them, even though she's not perfect, right? Yeah. She makes a lot of mistakes and stuff. And so I think the the journey that we see her go on, she's never okay with being in a war. And I think that 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 fact resonates so strongly with the fact that she's the only real survivor. Like to me, this is the like Cassie's battle morph as a symbol thing. The fact that she's the wolf, she's always the wolf. It's like, she's kind of like, she's a survivor. She has a lot of (laughs) endurance, right? She can like keep going. And I think her constant those those emotional skills of re-examining and questioning mm-hmm. while they make her a tactical liability sometimes have allowed her to kind of like process the war as like one of many things that she can do and she may never fully recover from it but she mm-hmm. is like able to see okay well at, the war has ended and I'm going to go and do other things and I had to be in a war because of circumstance but I never let myself be defined by it mm-hmm. in a way that maybe saying we have to do this for the greater good kind of defines Jake in a way that he can't escape. Yeah, Cassie, I feel like what she goes through in book nine actually sets her up so well for Mm -hmm, her recovery mm -hmm. after the war. Mm -hmm. Just like her coming to recognize like, crap, this thing that I loved in a simple way is actually really complicated and I have to live with this complexity and I'm never going to be able to reduce this down. And mm-hmm. she never does let it reduce down. And Jake definitely shies away he, from a lot of things like we see it over the course of the series. This like he doesn't want to face the realities of the decisions he's making. Yeah, he lives in denial. It reminds yeah. me of the the book sixteen fire starting thing. He doesn't want to tell <laughs> us what happened. There are a bunch of moments like that from Jake. And it makes so much sense to me that Cassie would have good work to do after the war and like that can give her like continued life and excitement and she doesn't miss the adrenaline of the war because what she really gets satisfaction out of is like being able to solve problems in nonviolent ways and like be useful to the world. One thing about Cassie is that she doesn't really have an arc. She just has a very strong character. Mm. It doesn't really change throughout the series. She doesn't change or grow very much. I mean, they all grow and change. I mean, they're getting older for if, if, if nothing else. But from the beginning, we see that she is reluctantly dedicated to the war because she sees it as a necessity, but that it is something she is only doing out of necessity. And her foolish optimism is really a driving motivator for her. She doesn't learn anything from that, right? There's not a sense, to me at least, 
post book 50, I never got the sense that Cassie was like, oh, you know, I have several times throughout our war made decisions based on my optimistic view of the Yerks and what they could be. And this was one more version of that. Each one of them seems very separate to her. So she I don't think she's kind of learning from those instances in any meaningful way. She's sort of seeing that they were justified and using that as a retroactive justification for each reaction. That's so fascinating. I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with your statement that she doesn't have an arc. I mean, she doesn't learn a lesson, but like that's not the quite the same thing. I mean, I think we do see a lot of change. Like the Cassie in book nine grows a ton from the Cassie in book four. And then in 19, she goes through this huge transformative thing that I think actually does set her up. We talked about this a little already for the decision in book 50, maybe not in a great way. And she seems to have been able to like walk back from the sort of extreme mighty Cassie tendencies like after the war. But I think, yeah, she did. She did change definitely in certain ways. The Cassie we had in book 50 was not the Cassie from book four. No, but I think it's the Cassie from book nine. What you're so part of Cassie's arc is definitely the like aliens are people too thing, which is less about Cassie and more about how aliens are presented in the series because she gets the Aftran books, she gets the Aldrea book. Mm-hmm. Um, something that just occurred to me in what you said, Gray, is I wonder if part of the reason that people don't like Cassie is because she's a bad soldier. And I agree that she doesn't actually reflect on those aspects of herself directly. I think she does reflect a lot about her individual choices, but you're kind of like frustrated that she's not seeing a pattern, the pattern that you well, see. Well, right? yeah, or not even frustrated, but just not seeing, I'm not seeing an arc. I'm seeing Cassie and Cassie's great. Mm. I'm, I'm not in any way trying to judge Cassie. I just don't see a lot of change. But this is the other thing about Jake not taking Cassie that it kind of like goes with that saying is I feel like Cassie never learned how to be a good soldier. Mm-hmm. Like she was a good Animorph yep. and she was an invaluable member of the team and the team mm-hmm. needed mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. capabilities, both strategic and kind of like team building that she brought as like the heart of the group mm-hmm. to survive. She was absolutely an essential part of it. But like if you are putting together a team of soldiers, like yeah. I think your point is she never developed those skills to like, always follow orders and like do what's best for the team. Yeah. Well, and, and to some extent, like I think that she was an important member of the team and that they needed her to be there, but to some extent, well, no, to a large extent, you know, the team needed her a lot more than she needed the team, which isn't, I think true for anyone else. I don't know if that's true. She had a lot of trouble acting independently and, Oh, yeah, I she... think up through up until book twenty nine, the one that you hate, which I is one of my is, is I mean it's not one of my top ten, but it's at least close to my top ten, um, where she does learn to act independently and like take some more responsibility for her actions, which she sort of does in nineteen in sort of a not being quite willing to think everything through way, and mm-hmm. then in twenty nine she really kind of has to face up to stuff and like gain the strength to operate alone, and so I think she she does still sometimes hide in other people's shadows, like in 48, where she's like, I don't think I can kill David or return him to the island or anything. She does sometimes shy away from stuff and rely on other people to pick up the slack because she's not willing to get her hands dirty sometimes. It's also fascinating that she she manages to keep her hands clean, right? It's like, if if not for Rachel, like if Cassie had had to kill David... She wouldn't be okay after the war. That's right? actually probably true. I think it's the rest of the team picking up that slack that lets her be 
Brazilian. Although yeah. we do see her doing the thing with the. Um, I'm so sorry, you guys. What book is it when they're digging and she saves them from the gas explosion? Book 43. 43. Yeah, when she says it'll never be okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the darkest she she goes. Yeah. Yeah. But then even at the end, right, she says, <laughs> I have reasoned from the fact that I'm not a war criminal to thinking Jake is not a war criminal, <laughs> right? It's like, it's all it's almost delusional. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think you're right that she um, keeps her hands clean to some extent. But I also, I meant really emotionally that she does more for the team than they do for her. Like, you yeah, know, that's she, probably true. She's sort of caring the, emotional. Care, yeah. And carrying the conscience and all of that sort of thing and, and absolving or trying to absolve them from some of their yeah, more heinous yeah. actions. But also her dedication to the fight, even though she's one of the first to recognize how important it is, she's also mm-hmm. one of the least into that as a, an idea. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's just, she, it is interesting to me how she's characterized throughout. I think I just like, I feel like I really, I think I said this at the beginning of the series. I really admire Cassie. I really like her. I like her as a person. And it's really interesting to think about her role in the group Mm -hmm. and in the series. I want to touch on the Cassie, the Oracle thing that we've Mm -hmm. talked about before, Mm -hmm. just because I have such a strong headcanon about the ending that she is in no way supernatural. <laughs> I think being temporally grounded does not mean she gets to see <laughs> visions of the future. It's just like an excuse for why time travel can't be an answer to all of their problems. Uh-huh. Sure. They can't um, just find the time matrix. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I refuse to believe there's anything supernatural going on there. And anytime someone calls Cassie far-seeing or, like, wiser than other people... I need to read that as other characters seeing her that okay. way and mm-hmm. not something that is like narratively true, or which means that she is like better able to step back and see the big picture and they're too mired in the details. Exactly. But yeah. I think that I, I am not on board at all with the defense of Cassie. That's like, she's somehow supernatural or like mm-hmm. she, the consequences <laughs> of her choice mean that she was right or whatever. Right. Like that's a, that even be a defense. <laughs> no, but I, I guess think, sort of, I yeah. think as presented, she's like, she has magical superpowers cause she's temporarily grounded. And like, her intuition is always proven right by the narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and like, yeah. and, and no, the I fact... mean, those are the things that I want to attack her on. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Like, so, yeah. so anyway, in in my head, I actually really like Gray your interpretation of Cassie's choice as she had a hunch she couldn't understand, and she made a really bad call, and then later she rationalizes it. I think that's very psychologically plausible. I still prefer the headcanon that she has been really worrying over the idea of how the war can end Mm -hmm. without total war Mm -hmm. and her experience with Aftran and the Yurk peace movement and seeing that there's still a Yurk resistance out there that saves Jake's life and seeing that there are divisions among the Yurk commanders. She's like, there is another way. And like, I, it, it doesn't exist in the text at all, but I really want what I want for the character is for her to at some point just defend that vision of like, let's find a third way. And I know the series doesn't have it, but that's like such a strong a little bit in 52. That's a, such a strong headcanon for me that I found that was one of the most frustrating things about Cassie's arc on this reread mm. is that that those connections happen as much in my head mm. as they do in the text. It's, well, and it's so important that they do find a third way. And, and the Animorphs are able to identify some way to make this, to like solve the problem of this war and, and, and how it's going to end. 
in a very creative and in a really great way. And this is something that like, I've been trying, I I think I need to just go back and reread the last like five books to see if I can parse this better. Because I guess part of my complaint is just, I don't understand. The books are doing a lot of work to show that Cassie's decision allows that third way to exist. And I don't understand because the that seems to indicate that the Yerks like didn't know about morphing until <laughs> they had the cube, which can't be true because this are three morphs. But there's like knowing and knowing, right? Yeah, but like, like the, you can know things exist, but not think, think of them as possibilities for yourself. I don't think it's more as I don't think it's as much knowledge as it is transferring the technology to them created divisions in the ranks both in terms of the Yurk hierarchy on the Tom versus Visser 1 evil side, and in terms of the, oh, now the Taxons realize in a super concrete way that they're second-class citizens in the Yurk Empire. Yeah, there is a really strong argument for, like, the Yurks, as we've seen them, are terribly organized. They like, prove they're, Visser they're... 1 is a terrible leader. There are all these, like, potential bonfires to start in the Yurk society such as it is it seems to just be a military cassie like i don't love cassie's decision for a lot of reasons as i've said but like the idea that like oh if i introduce this like thing that actually the yurks would really want or a lot of them would really want like this will be sort of the the match that will light mm. all of this tinder and yeah. maybe cause them to fall apart from the inside a little bit yeah no i i, I guess it makes sense I, with arbron there i feel the taxons would have found a way to rebel at some point in order to, you know, survive. And I guess part of my complaint was just yeah. like, the Animorphs no longer have the morphing cube that will allow them <laughs> to fulfill the promises that they have made. Yeah, it almost would have made more sense if the Taxons had approached the Animorphs while the Animorphs had, had the, cube, the cube. Because right. Arbor knows about morphing. Yes, and then the Animorphs would, would have the cube that they could use, <laughs> as opposed to now they have to, like negotiate with the Andalites, like, do all of this up. Oh my gosh, can you imagine the final battle where they've given a thousand Taxons morphing power and they just have a thousand Anacondas attack the pool ship? I mean, It would be so great! But yeah, and that's totally a genre thing though, right? Like, because it needs to be, if you have a bunch of allies who are combatants in the end game and you have the morphing cube, then you just make them all morph capable, right? It's yeah. like it's like a destroying all the time turners well, thing in Harry Potter. Well, then you can just kill them off like you did to the auxiliaries. No, I know. And like, why don't Toby and the Free Orc Bajir have morphing powers? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Questions but, I have. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's very genre-driven. Yeah. Rachel? Can we talk Rachel? Rachel. Rachel's great. I love her. <laughs> Tobias is my favorite Animorph, but Rachel is my second favorite Animorph. Mm. I would like to challenge you both to accept the bad parts of Rachel. Okay. The way so that I have the accepted thing. the bad parts of Cassie. Here's the thing. It's not that I want to argue there aren't any bad parts to Rachel. It's that the way the bad parts are presented in the second half of the series, particularly in the lead up to her death, not specifically in the last two books, but everything before that, is so bad and offensive that I reject that portrayal of it, but I do not reject that Rachel has bad parts of her. She loves the fight in ways that are in the way that's like a strength and a weakness. She has like the parts actually like the parts of her presented in book 32. I accept those parts of Rachel, like that there is this like vicious side of her that's kept in check. Like that seems really real and founded in the entire series. 
And it's something that we've seen grow. We've seen her come aware of it in like 22. We've seen her struggle with it in the late 20s and early 30s. The stuff in um, book 41 and Megamorphs 4, where we see her like kind of losing it in the in battle and just like going into this like violent frenzy. I would have loved to see that explored in a way that felt psychologically like real and cohesive. And instead, what we get are these incredibly poorly written nonsensical Rachel books. So there's a lot that's said about the bad parts of Rachel's character in the books that I wholeheartedly reject because it doesn't even make her seem like a real person. And that is not the same as me rejecting the bad parts of Rachel's character. Well said. Yeah. I'm very happy to have teed up that rant. (laughs) It was a very good rant. Trying to channel some of the commentary we've got from our listeners. (laughs) I think it's we're in a tough spot because the second half of the series is an incredible disservice to Rachel in terms of quality writing. Yeah. Right. So (laughs) there's no good book for her. I mean, I think I liked 32 more than you guys did. But like certainly after that, like there is no good Rachel book. And, like, I had to do so much work in 48 to, like, rewrite it in my head so that it was a satisfying (laughs) Rachel story. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this when I was re-listening to um, our most recent mailbag uh, and the rankings. And I think that this is one of the few times where where my being a first-time reader is, like, a a severe disadvantage is my ability to be Mm. objective about Rachel. And, And the reason in part for that is actually Jenny's 37. Um, because I <laughs> oh no I read no, it I have read that now as many times or sometimes more times than I have the rest of the series right like I have read Jenny's thirty seven two maybe three times now I have read all of the other books one to two times right and so I have as much of my love for Rachel is motivated by that as for anything else as as any other characterization of her. So I, I think I'm better able to justify her because I've seen that aspect. <laughs> Which is, of course, not canonical, much as you guys might like to vote it in. Yeah. And like, while while I can logically be like, that is not real. That did not exist. Yes. Like, Jenny made that up for me. But it, it justified so much of my feelings about Rachel. And I think there there are a lot of negative aspects of her personality, as we all have. And... Certainly, I think her violence is something that, like, I would be very afraid of if I were her friend or her partner mm-hmm. or anything like that. But the, her ability to keep that in check in her personal relationships, as we see with, like, Tobias, for example, I think for me, like, justifies it a little bit. Not justifies, but, like, makes up for that a little bit. And I think a lot of the reason that I'm, like, so quick to defend her is because I think the books did her an injustice. And so, I'm like more more willing to defend yeah. her than I would it's be. It's a pushback. Yeah, it's a pushback. Right exactly. It's like, well, the the books are being mean to her and I like her, <laughs> so I'm going to defend her even though like I do not necessarily agree with her decisions. But that's that's how I feel about Cassie, yeah. the way Cassie's yeah. choice is portrayed. Like I really want it to be fair. a way that it's not. Yeah, totally fair. <laughs> and the thing with Rachel, especially everything up to 54, like I knew that she was going to get killed and I did not want to say that I knew that. But a lot of my how dare they say that she needs this war like this is because I Mm. thought that they were building up to, uh, well, she has to die because she can't live outside of this war. She needs this to survive somehow. So I couldn't fully articulate that, of course, course, without spoiling Grey. But that was where a lot of my pushback was coming from. No, that's totally I do think, so the version of 37 that I wrote is an interesting case, because, like, I didn't write it really with Rachel's arc in mind. Like, we wrote it as, like, a let's have Grey's predictions, let's have some of them come true, and, like, and, of course, it happened to be a Rachel book, and we were, so there was some exploration of Rachel's character. 
I had not, when I wrote that book, read anything after, you know, 35 or 36. I hadn't read any of the later Rachel books. So I wasn't actively reacting to anything. And I do think, if I recall it correctly, that like there is a lot in there about like Rachel's violence and her like conflicted feelings about that. It, I don't know if it takes her, it doesn't take her far enough in that direction to justify the stuff in Canon 37, which I'm sorry, that book is an abomination. Like she doesn't even feel like a real character. It's so hard for me to take that seriously as characterization. But I do think actually that where I wanted to take her in that book is pretty much in line with where we where we see her at the end. Hmm. And where we see her um, maybe in, in book 48 also, like rejecting like tempted by the offer of power because she'll be able to end this war and like yeah you know channeling some of this rage with violence rejecting it but then still having to do violent things mm. i i love that arc for her and that struggle where she's like almost fighting an addiction but has to keep doing the thing because it's actually important for other reasons it's mm-hmm. like if the if the world depended on you continuing to take the drug that you are trying like, yeah. would need to quit for health reasons. Yeah, I uh, I feel like there there is something of an arc that can be distilled from amidst the bad writing, but I think you have to take Canon 37 out of it. I think it just, it, that book is nonsense. <laughs> I don't think you have, like, I think what you said is strong. I agree that it's a very poorly written book and she doesn't mm-hmm, feel like mm-hmm. a person. You can't um, have part of a character's arc be a thing where she doesn't feel like a person. Like, that doesn't, it doesn't work. But there are, like, plenty of bad books, right? Like... There are no books as bad as that one. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> and there aren't, most of the bad books aren't character assassination in that way. I agree. But her arc in general, is there anything else we want to talk about for her whole series? So I think I was thinking about what if Rachel had lived. Mm. Um, yeah. I feel like she actually is one of the more resilient ones, but she would probably get killed trying to retake the Horkbudger homeworld or some yeah. other... Like, yeah. I think I think she would just keep throwing herself back into conflict. And mm. at some point, you get unlucky, probably, right? Like, I, I don't see her and Tobias successfully retiring to a meadow somewhere and, like, <laughs> No, but maybe they would out. have gone to fight together on the Horkbajir homework. Right. Yeah. Or, I mean, I think they would be really fun. I, I think Rachel would do well in Jake's new, like, exploring the universe to take out Kryak crew you know? yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah one of the things that i was thinking about with this regards to the series as a whole is its treatment of the female characters and the gender dynamics that exist and i mean i love rachel as the tank it made a lot of sense for her to be the one who died and it does result in this sort of weird thing where the male animorphs get together to go off and fight again and cassie and rachel are positioned as like these extreme poles as we talked about in 52 in ways that I think, I do wonder if it's a little, like, if there's a little bit of a phenomenon going on. And I don't want to, I don't want to state this too strongly, because I do think they're very vivid characters. And Cassie and Rachel are among the most interesting characters. But there, there might be a phenomenon where like, okay, if we have two female characters, we have to make them as different as possible, because otherwise, well, they're both female characters, so they would seem like they're the same. Whereas you can have a handful of male characters and believe that they're all individual people because the strongest thing about them isn't their gender. Mm. And so I, I think that there is some effect there. And so that like, Cassie and Rachel have the two most extreme outcomes, like one of them dies and one of them's the only survivor, really. And I do think that there's a gendered thing going on there. That's so interesting. I do think there's some gender stuff with Rachel and Cassie. I, I can't imagine that was... I think the ending is true to the characters more than it is... A reflection of, and like yeah. maybe the way that those 
the pool table was set up in the first book yeah, yeah, I think it, it means that it falls out this way. That the they thing- had to have these characters who are best friends, but like diametrically opposed. Yeah, yeah. I do think there's something to the idea that like Jake and Marco especially get strategically significant books and choices to make mm-hmm. and Rachel and Cassie are get more fluffy books and more emotionally driven books and there's probably some unintended sexism going on there. Yeah, some bias. Right. Like it's not a good look representation-wise that they form a <laughs> 5 out of 6. Um Yeah male Animorphs gang at the end and the woman is just there to be the butt of Marco's jokes. Yep. I mean, she's like cool and like does in fact yeah, kind of bat but... down Marco's jokes, but mostly she's there to bat down Marco's jokes. Yeah. yeah. But I do think you're right that it's the books do such a great job at so many things, including building those two relatively complex characters and giving them nuance in a way that we sometimes don't see in you know the chick Mm -hmm. like the fact that rachel can be such a complex and difficult character she's not you know she's not an unadulterated good guy she's Mm -hmm. damaged and difficult and her arc makes sense and that i think is pretty cool um we don't always get that in fiction but i think you're right that some unconscious bias may have may have sneaked in as it is wont to do. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about how we have changed since the beginning of the podcast <laughs> as we're talking about character arcs? Ooh. Well, the world is very different right now than it was when we started this podcast. It's hard to like measure any change against this world is ridiculous and weird now. But yeah. That's fair. I mean, I feel like the exercise of doing this close read with y'all... Mm. And having to say my opinions about things and be okay with not always articulating things as well as I could <laughs> have has been really nice for our friendships and also for my like confidence in my ability to like say stuff. And I'm now over my fear of listening to my own voice. Accurate. So true. <laughs> I'm used to it. There's a, It probably only took three or four hours of listening to it to, for that to happen. Amazing yeah. what four hours of exposure will therapy will do to you. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the the close reading thing has has ruined me for a lot of other discussions about things because it's just so satisfying to like dig into all the significant details of a thing and to like build this whole corpus of conversation topics that we've like, you know, we've talked about all these themes in previous books and now here they are back in this one. I do want to start like probably not right away, but I want to start another podcast about something just because it's so fun to dig into something with this level of depth. Yeah. Yeah. It has been very enjoyable. I also am really happy to have re-encountered the ending of Animorphs and been strong enough to bear it this time around. It helped that we were together. <laughs> it really did. You may be the most avid reader of us all, Gray. So I'm really curious what this reading experience was like for you. You know, I have really enjoyed, as Jenny was saying, the the deep dive. I think it's something that I really love about reading in groups. Right now I'm in three and a half book clubs, which is down from six book clubs a few years ago, um, which was too many. That was too many. Yeah. Because I didn't really have a lot of time for, for other reading. And a thing that I love about reading with other people is the chance for my own views on a given book to be changed and influenced by those people. 
And that's especially true when reading with smart, empathetic, clever readers like the two of you. Because I think having your opinions to bounce my own off of has honed my opinions and also made me a better reader of these books in particular. Because I know that when I argue about Cassie's decision making or, you know, Marco's jokes or whatever, I'm going to have to come with receipts. And that's been really (laughs) valuable. And it's also just wonderful to get those other perspectives of, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand this part, or this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, or I'm reading it this way. And having you guys come back and say, here's my reading, you know, here's what I think is happening has been an incredible experience and one that I'm very much going to miss as we, you know, move on to whatever comes next, because it's, it's been a really incredible thing to do with you guys. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think the Animorphs are worth podcasting about. Yes. Agreed. I was kind of surprised at how many podcasts existed once we started this and realized we were definitely not alone. Yeah. There were more than three <laughs> others. But it's like way more than three. I totally, I totally get yeah. it. There's so much to talk so about. Much. So much. Yeah, they're yeah. great. We, I was listening to our our first couple episodes, and in the like the one before we started, I was like disparaging the book's language and like totally not justified. No, nope. nope, they're great. Great. I wanted to give you a shout out because in episode one, you say, "Oh man, I really hope this." Andalite Prince's kids come back for revenge at some point. And I was like, already, she's the queen of predictions. Book one. Oh, man. Also, you said, I can't wait to see how the Civil War comes into play. (laughs) Turns out I could have waited. I was fine with waiting. Didn't actually need to see that. Could have skipped that book. Would have been very happy to skip it. Thanks very much. Uh, Oh, man. It was really fun to go back and listen to episode zero and one of our podcast before this episode. I can't believe I didn't know there were aliens. <laughs> what? You did guess there might be aliens, though. So props to you. Very briefly. Very briefly. Yeah. You were like, solve crimes? Fight aliens? Right. What are the many options you could have? I also learned recently that Power Rangers is now streaming. And after the number of times I talked about Power Rangers in the first two episodes, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that show yeah. for just some 90s Maybe nostalgia. I should watch it. I've never seen it. Also, I really can't believe that it took until nearly the end of the season for me to bring up all the comparisons to Avatar The Last Airbender because there are so many <laughs> and I'm very excited for Ted to watch it. Yeah. So do we want to talk a little bit about what's next? Yeah. So we're going to do a guest panel. All our, all our previous guest hosts, really excited. I think we have like at least 15 people coming back, something like that. And we're probably going to an every two weeks schedule starting with that yeah, episode or every month. Yeah, not every week. Yeah. So After yeah, this it won't episode. be weekly. One we'll thing, try and post online, like on Twitter, when our next episode is coming out or but something. But stay subscribed. Uh, one thing we did talk about in, uh, I think it was probably episode zero, was Vegemorphs, which we should definitely yes, read. Yes, we have to do that. I am committed to reading Vegemorphs. Gray and I are going to watch the rest of oh the Animorphs TV show at some point, <laughs> and we may feel the need to podcast about it. We may not. No promises. Um, I think we're interested in seeing if we have any podcast things to say about Everworld, but yeah. probably we should give be it a, a while before yeah. that happens. I'm certainly not going to take like take up every week Everworld starting you know two weeks from now. That seems. Unlikely. I also wanted to say that. One of the amazing things about Animorphs podcasting at this time is it's been an amazing 18 months for Animorphs mm, because mm-hmm. we had the new audiobooks come out. We had yep, the yep. announcement of a graphic novel coming later in 2020 and the announcement of the Animorphs movie, Woo-hoo! 
How which, have we not talked about that? We haven't talked about the podcast about yet because we were in the ending. But um, check <laughs> out true. We had other things. And Morphology on Twitter for all of our thoughts about that. Mostly it's just we're very excited. We hope it's animated. Also, there were other things, but I wasn't allowed to read them. Oh, yeah. Great. You're free now. Can I can I look at Twitter oh, now? Yeah. We need to do like we need to do a fandom podcast. Yeah. And I want to do a fan fiction exchange, which we have not prepared. So I'm not going to lay out how it's going to work right now. Yeah. But we'll figure it out. So I'm super excited to, for us to dive into fandom. I feel like we can have free reign now. We can listen yeah. to other podcasts. We can read fan fiction. Awesome. Um, I will send both of you the Animorph subreddit has collected a list of world of a list of word of God entries um, that are that can be found online. Nice. Like Apple Grant have done various Reddit ask me anythings and their interviews from the you know two thousands have all been cataloged. I haven't actually reread all of those things, so maybe maybe we'll have a future like I think we should do word some of kind God of mailbag where we address yeah. um, commenters, post yeah, series yeah, yeah. stuff, and some word of God stuff and. Other fandom stuff we find. I'm going to look at some Zeropedia. Excited to do that. I'm going to go follow <laughs> Incorrect Animorphs on Tumblr. <laughs> Excellent. going to read some fanfic. I'm very excited about all of this. Yeah. Future is bright. The future is bright. No demorphing. I was going to say, do not yet demorph. Yeah. Animorphology <laughs> yeah, exactly. will not end until the Animorphs movie comes out. Whoa. Ooh, okay. Does that mean it has to end when the Animorphs movie comes out? Or? Nope. Okay, nope. great. Great. Because we have to review it, obviously. Yeah, we're going to, we will have a podcast. I will maybe even watch it, maybe. Maybe. Oh my gosh. You're going to watch it. You're definitely watching it. (laughs) Be very clear. Okay, what, if we, if we go to see a midnight showing of the Animorphs movie, what costumes (gasps) will we wear? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I guess like Hork Bajir, if you had like orange, (laughs) orange tips on the edge of all the blades. Wow. It would be too... Too dangerous. Yeah, well, if you made them out okay. of like cardboard, I mean. I want to go as a taxon. <laughs> Start that cosplay now. Here's how. No, no, it has to be the three of us because okay. one of us has to be the the upper section with oh the lobster God. claws that's like standing, and then the other two have to be crawling along behind as the centipede body. So it'll be a three person like pantomime. Absolutely not. For so many reasons, not least of which is that has human centipede vibes that I am not into (laughs) at all. Oh, God. We haven't even talked about. Do you think the creators of human centipede red animorphs can we blame Apple Grant? Because, well, I don't think that timing works out, but also because I don't want that to be associated with animorphs. One ooh. One final shout out for listeners. I'm really interested in surveying the other Animorphs podcasts out there. So I would love recommendations. Mm. If you're a fan of Morph Club or Dirk Bajir Chronicles or Animorphs Anonymous or any of the other Animorphs podcasts that are out there, recommend your favorite episodes because I'm not going to go listen to (laughs) the Invasion episode for every single podcast. I think that would drive me insane. But I would love to jump around through the series and hear the best of what the other podcasts have to offer. And I liked your idea about we each go listen to like, I don't know, episode 15 from like a bunch of, a bunch of different podcasts. Yeah, that's fun. And, see and then we each pick a different what our, what our takes book. are. Yeah. yeah. All right. Until next time. All for now. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Okay, it has everything, though. It has found family, Mm -hmm. heists, and the horrors of war. Those are the three main (laughs) themes of the Babysitter's Club, right? Pretty much. (laughs) All your expectations.